And now, ladies and gentlemen, Kawhi is proud to present the mightiest monster in all creation. Welcome back to YBR Presents Kawaii, a look at Japanese horror and its influential history throughout time. I am Zach Eastman. With me, as always, is Rashmi Manan. Hello. Great to be here again, Zach. Wonderful. Now, today, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to be tackling a big one, a big one. We've kind of teased you with some smaller titles or un- or obscure titles, but today we're going into a big one. When you think of Japanese horror, sometimes, more often than not, actually, if you're not thinking about creepy ghosts, you are thinking about kaiju, and the kaiju craze was a massive influence, not just on Japanese pop culture, but American pop culture. Now, we are going to be not only continuing the thread of Iji Tsuburaya this time around, but we will also be introducing one Ishiro Honda to the YBR Presents feed. And what better way to do it than with Mothra? Yes, that's right. Despite the fact that we could talk about anything from Gojira to Kinkadora to Rodan, we are settling upon Mothra. A very, very... I would I would say <laughs> we could jump right into it. The introduction I think is useless for this episode, Rashmi, because frankly, Mothra is a movie that surprised the hell out of me. Huh. In a way that I wasn't expecting. I was imagining something to be goofy as sin. And instead uh-huh. I was delighted by right? this film. So much yes. so that I think that the plot, the breakdown of this monster speak for itself no introduction is gonna top a kaiju actually storming into this studio and kicking the shit out of me so we would just it it would make sense for us to kind of just jump in i will say though that mothra is one of those oft uh, oft underestimated uh monsters when it comes to japanese uh kaiju films when you think i do yeah yeah Yeah. i I mean hot take for me is mothra is my favorite and i know that's that's you know it's it's uh it's it's weird to say that because I know Godzilla's so popular, but uh, we'll get into kind of why a little bit later. But yeah, I love Mothra. I love Mothra in like a, you know, kind of a heart to heart way. You know, it's mm-hmm. like it just bypasses the brain and goes to your heart, and you're just like, I love this kaiju. If uh, if, <laughs> if I were to do a traditional introduction to this um, episode again, I, I really do think that the that the the the, the, gi- the ginormous subject speaks for itself. However, I would say that. When we look at our kaiju films, we tend to notice that they are very efficient at smashing things recklessly. But mm-hmm. in this particular case, we are dealing with a far more intentionally noble That's uh, right. kaiju character as opposed exactly. to the ones that seem to be the horrors 
strictly just angry. Atom- yeah. yeah the- and Godzilla's just angry and destructive, right? Basically. Yes. Yes. He's angry. He got woken up from his slumber. He's angry. And now he's just going to go kick some ass. Yes. And Mothra is much more protective, right? And that's why I will be using the pronoun she for Mothra. So Mothra, if you're offended, <laughs> write us a note and let us know. But that's my interpretation based on other movies in the series as well. You're and so Mothra me. Is- Where do you get off? <laughs> Calling exactly. me well, a you know, she. If, <laughs> if Mothra gets in touch, I will, of course... Uh, 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 be issuing an apology, just... but uh, but I'm going to go with she, and I think it is it is much more of a it's a protective energy, a nurturing energy. Uh, I'm going to come and rescue my people. That's my job, and regardless of what gets thrown at me, I'm going to persist and I'm going to make that happen. Um, and I think yeah, it's so sympathetic when you think of kaiju. Like this is literally a movie that ends. Okay, spoiler, we're already talking about the end, but uh, a movie that ends with the monster succeeding and that's a good thing mm-hmm. you know <laughs> yeah it, you know it's it's funny because like so like my kaiju history is not as steeped as other film fans i've seen i had seen gajira prior to doing it for ballyhoo with punk rock horror podcast and i had i had watched like on and off like like here and there like a few of those things but like i nothing like in full and i, I w- it would always be like huge compilations of clips Mothra was one that I always kind of assumed would be rather silly. I will say, though, that the first time I experienced Mothra in a more sincere vein, I guess, was uh, with Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Watching Mothra appear in that film was very Mm -hmm. interesting. And it was fun to be like, and this is kind of the thing about kaiju films I've noticed, is that like I can walk into a recent Godzilla movie, not the one made in 98. That has nothing to do with Godzilla at all. That has everything to do with stupid. Um, I... I can walk into those films and even if I haven't seen a Rodan movie or a King Ghidorah movie or Destroy All Monsters, I can identify more or less who those monsters are by sight and mm-hmm. by intention. And I think that that speaks to the popularity of these characters, uh, mm-hmm. that they that they have this enormous following. And, it, and it, this is kind of sounding naive for me, but it's just like these weren't films that attracted me when I was younger. And if mm-hmm. anything, like I will say that kaiju-wise, my favorite ones to watch are Gamera, and that's because of MST3K. But mm-hmm. but I have watched Gamera on its own, and it's perfectly fine die uh, a kaiju mm-hmm. film. Uh, sure. It's... I think it's sillier than Godzilla, that's for sure. Yeah. But yeah. it's really cool to just watch a giant turtle smashing, smashing things. <laughs> and, I, and I think that that's kind of another beautiful part of the kaiju genre ends up being that a child can get into it because it is yes. a, it's a monster smashing the, the place. Right. Uh, right. But, but as you get older, if these films are done correctly, yeah. the, the allegory present, however yes. bare thread it might be. Yeah is still very powerful and it it, is and mothra this film i think why i maybe like this film more there's such an emotional thread to it right Mm -hmm. and everything about colonialism and all this nuclear testing and all these terrible things that have happened in the world are in or baked into this and i think that's why it makes it so poignant now for context the the reason that there is a slew of these coming out of the mid 50s onwards has a lot to do with an embargo on ideas, essentially, uh, uh, coming out of Japan uh, due to uh, the U.S. occupation uh, post-war. Yeah. 
Yeah. Let me do my, uh, so, you know, I know I, as we do these podcasts, I like to introduce folks to a little bit of Japanese culture, history, yes. et cetera. So and I'll do my little means. culture corner here with a few points that I have. Woo-hoo. So yes, first of all, kind of where we are in history. Yeah, exactly. So what's happened now is uh, in 1952, as we talked about in the last episode, uh, the U.S. formally turned over Japan back to the Japanese so they could run their own country. And afterwards is when you start to see movies like Godzilla that could be critical of things that the U.S. military did, Mm -hmm. which obviously was not allowed pre-1952. And so this is kind of a film where you see, this is another film where you see that, right? Of course, they they named this fictional power uh, Rolisica or whatever in in a combination of Russia (laughs) and America. But for the most part, it's America, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's not really a communist angle. It's very much a capitalist country. Down to to the very basic like uh, statements from their embassy. It's very interesting in the dialogue, yeah. Exactly. So America is kind of the bad guy in here and pretty overtly the bad guy. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, now we can do this uh, because, OK, so this movie's nineteen, early 1960s, 1961. So Japan at this time is really entering that period of flourishing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we mentioned in our past few episodes after the war, you know, 45 to mid 50s or so was definitely a time of deprivation and difficulties of kind of you know, recovering from a country that's just been blasted to the past. And so mm-hmm. um, it was it was definitely a period of recovery. Um, and then as you start to get into the later 50s, early 60s, and then kind of a runway for the next 20 years is really when Japan is really uh, becoming the powerhouse economy that it becomes to the point where, you know, in the 1980s, they're, you know, they bought Rockefeller Center and Americans got so freaked out. We had to make movies like Gung Ho, uh, Sorry, yeah. world. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. But this is really the start, right? It's we're really getting into that mode. Lots of consumer spending, people starting to get TV sets, you know, all this kind of stuff is happening right now in Japan. Um, This is also the peak of the studio film era, right? So just as in the US, you know, the timelines in Japan and the US are very, very similar. This is where kind of um, TV is starting to make a dent, but isn't as bad as we get to as we get to the later 60s. Studios still have quite a bit of money to fund productions. Toho was doing pretty well at this time. Um, and so this film did get a decent budget. Um, so it's kind of the peak of the studio era. We'll start to see that drop off as this decade draws to a close. The studio film the studio, you know, just like in the U.S., studio process basically falls apart. That whole system falls apart. Right. Um, then just a quick note on, uh, you'll note in this film, there's some of the Japanese military involved. The same thing happens in Godzilla. And just to note that um, since the U.S. wrote Japan's constitution for them, and they wrote it for them at a period after we just fought a war with them, Japan is constitutionally prevented from having a traditional military. Mm-hmm. To this day, if you can believe that. So to this day, Japan can only have a self-defense force. So obviously they have right. some armed forces to defend themselves. I don't know if China attacks or Russia attacks or something like that. But they're not allowed to have a large enough military that they could actually proactively go attack a country. Um, and in last few years, this has become more and more of an issue. Uh, the right wing, as in many countries in the world right now, the right wing that has become more nationalistic recently and really wants to amend the constitution to change that clause so that Japan can have an offensive military. But very much in the time of this film and still legally to this day, they only have a self-defense force. So that's just a note on their military. Now, I did want to get into a little bit about the Japanese language. Um, because yes. 
obviously, the name of this film in English is Matra, right? Or Motra, or, you know, however you want to say it. M-O-T-H-R-A. Yeah. But... Japanese is a language where you don't have compound consonants uh, or even consonants without a vowel after it, with one exception, which I'll get to in a minute. But basically, in Japanese, all consonants have a vowel after them. The only exception is the sound n, like at the end of zen, or actually our director today, Ishiro Honda, Honda, Honda. So N and D can go together because N is the only consonant you have without a vowel after it. Everything else, like when you learn the... Um, alphabet in Japanese, you go ka, ki, ku, ke, ko. So you don't have a letter K, you have ka, and then you mm. have ki, and then you have ku. So all the consonants have vowels after them. So because of that, they can't actually have the word matra in Japanese. So in Japanese, it's mosura, mm -hmm. mosura, because yes. they have to have consonants after all those, uh, sorry, vowels after all those consonants. So that's the Japanese uh, word for matra. And just a quick side note, in case people are interested in Japanese language, uh, Japanese has, they use what are called Chinese characters in English or kanji. They're called kanji in Japanese. So kanji is the kind of ideographic, uh, uh, you know, letters, well, not letters, kind of symbols that you'll see when you read Japanese, right? Which will right. look very similar to Chinese because those characters originally came from over from China, but they've been modified. In Japan, they look different. Um, so a Japanese person can't necessarily read Chinese. You can see some similarities. Some characters will look similar, but they're different. Um, so you have the kind of kanji, which are the ideographs, and then you will have uh, a phonetic Japanese script. And then they have a third script, which is a phonetic script for foreign words. That's called katakana. And then hiragana is the name for the Japanese phonetic script. So oftentimes when you write a word, you'll have that kanji character. And then the ending of that word will have some of these hiragana characters that can also be used to indicate like sometimes like past tense or things like that. You know, some of those things are done mm -hmm. uh, with those um, the uh, hiragana characters. So anyway, yeah. that's uh, so mosura because it is kind of a foreign word is probably going to be written most likely i'm guessing in katakana is how they would write that uh, right anyway. it, it, within that language note it's interesting because like there, there's a there's there was a factoid that i that i stumbled upon and really started putting two and two together because i didn't really think about this but apparently tanaka was at the forefront of adding ra the suffix ra at the end of these <laughs> kaiju films for their because of gojira being such a big success he's like well they they this is all part of this formula and right. he and we'll get more into him in a second but like That's i did funny. i did find that interesting from the context of language to hear you describe what we're dealing with in terms of masura rather yeah. than mothra that right. that brings an interesting point of like how things are translated yes. um, over overseas into uh, into where we have like yeah. when we did high and low like there's a yeah. there's a there's there's like a couple different titles I, I remember trying to title that episode and being like do I do heaven and hell do I do high and low what am I what the fuck am I doing and, right. and, and, and there's like there is a definite like element of error in translation or reinterpretation which always makes me wonder how much and, and I I think we'll never know unless I somehow learn Japanese within the next six months how <laughs> Like how much of what we get in terms of subtitles, yeah, is a direct one hundred percent translation? Yeah, to I can anything? tell you, um, yeah, it's not. <laughs> yeah, I figured yeah, it gets it. Get, I I'll, I'll say it's about ninety percent there. 
Um, I would say in general, you're not missing a whole lot of the meaning, but there are definitely language structures that are different in Japanese than in English. And so I, I've seen translators struggle with it because I'll see it done differently in different subtitles. Mm -hmm. So one example would be um, the way you call people, right? So, um, so in like a gangster movie, right? Oftentimes a younger gangster will call a older gangster aniki. Right. right. That's just yeah. the that's like it's kind of like a big brother kind of word. But it seems weird in English to translate it as big brother because we don't say that in English. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you yeah. know, that's and, and and also like oftentimes in a romantic partnership, a, a woman will call the man anata. Right. That's just what they call them. Anata means literally translated means you. Right. Mm. But it is more I often find like people subtitling will call it more like deer or honey or something like that. Right. right. So it's weird. Just some of the. Yeah, it's structurally a very different language. Mm -hmm. And so um, sometimes I will give you one example, I think, of um, uh, where I think actually meaning sometimes meaning is lost. And it's often like a double meaning gets lost. Right. Not in anything that we've really seen so far. I haven't noticed this, but sometimes it stands out, especially if you have like a gangster film or something where there's a lot of slang and there mm -hmm. may be some innuendo and things like that. Then sometimes um so there's a movie uh it's one of the kenji fukusaku it's his first movie uh he has a big gangster i think it's like five movies or something that he has together uh uh is it uh, there are two series that he does and i get their names mixed up graveyard of honor or something like that anyway um so the first movie in that series um at the end of the movie there's kind of a uh the translation in the subtitles. So what happens is like a gangster is trying to attack his boss. Um, and, you know, it's kind of, you know, like the Godfather thing, right? Yeah, Where the right. lower lower one, the younger guy is trying to kill the older boss guy. Yeah. And he kind of fails in his plot. And then he's brought in front of the older guy. And then he says, like, he says to the effect of like, but I have one bullet left or something like that, right? That's how it's translated because he says something to the effect, he uses the word Tama. Tama is the word for like a circular object. It's a word for bullet, mm -hmm. but it's also the word for a certain anatomical part of a man's body, right? So when he's translated in the subtitles, it says like, I, but I have one bullet left. But, but <laughs> I still have balls, right? Like I still, I'm coming after you again. This isn't the end. I right? still have and one so, ball left. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that's kind of one of those things where like, if you don't speak Japanese, you do kind of miss a little bit of the shading there. But overall, I would say the subtitles are pretty good. You're getting most of the meaning, but it's unavoidable, it's, right? It's not like, and it's not, it's, here's the funny part when it comes to Mothra specifically, because like I, there's something very valuable that you can find on the Criterion Collection at this moment. I don't know how long the license will last, but if you go to uh, Gojira, uh, the the collection of Gojira, um, for Gojira uh, 1954, they have within it Godzilla King of the Monsters, the Terry Morse um, repurposed version with Raymond Burr. Com mm -hmm. There's commentaries for both, uh, mm -hmm. Gojira and King of the Monsters. And mm -hmm. I got to tell you, I, I mean, just as a side note, I really was more enamored by the commentary for King of the Monsters than yeah. Gojira because well, because Gojira's history is so well documented. The classic, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. King of the Monsters, not necessarily so. And <laughs> there is a, uh, there, a lot of the history around dubbing fascinated me to no end in that commentary. And what I was struck by with Mothra was... Because I watched both versions, 
And this film was pre-sold essentially to Columbia Pictures. They had already yes. had had a long-standing deal at this point with Toho, um, mm-hmm. and and with Tanaka's uh, Monster Brood. And I will say that like there's some there's there's not like a ton of differences between these two versions, but the fact is that there's. The dubbing is a little off, but it is far more respectful than I assumed it would be. Mm, okay. uh, not maybe they were more involved or something. I I think that they just like they took it more seriously. It seems. Yeah, I, I, but because you know I was surprised to read that you like Honda didn't even know there was this English version of Godzilla that was made. That was like a complete surprise to him. Well, that know. that there's interesting yeah. elements of that, and I wonder if this is why Columbia tried to get it on the forefront of a long-standing deal when they yeah. put out Gojira as Godzilla King of the Monsters. There was an already there was already a precedent for it being a hit. So the normal licensing fee for a lot of these international imports yeah, they got a prestige. Yeah. Well, like this is the thing here: the initial like licensing fee for some of these international titles was around three thousand dollars. The company that ended up acquiring Gojira paid twenty four grand. Now that's not a <laughs> that's not a bit, as big a chunk of money. But it's bigger than three thousand dollars, and that there's an assumption uh, made by Callet that like they knew this was going to be a big hit. This was worth the investment, and so there is an element of Columbia like being like, well, let's just get on on the on the ground floor and not like have to like 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 splurge huge amounts of money. Let's have a long-standing deal of distribution. There's a more even flow, it seems, and mm-hmm. I I but I I do find that like. As a result, Columbia did not only take better, I think they took more care. Um, that we'll get into yeah. some of the differences, but I will say yep, it was that's a, great. It was a lot better than I thought it would be. Um, that's good. That's but, good to know. But the other, like, as we're jumping into the, to to the production of this, um, we we are dealing with two major figures here. We already have E.G. Subaru. Can, can I add one here. warning before I do want to talk about these folks? But one warning, but one more thing. Uh, just before we dig into talking about the director and the sure. producer, which I think it's going to be great. Yeah. Um, there are some racist portrayals in this film. So just want to let folks know yeah. that acknowledge that ahead of time. There mm-hmm. is brown face where essentially uh, Japanese people are painting their faces and pretending they are people of the Pacific Islands. And yeah. so that is unfortunate. Um, and, you know, luckily they are, you know, there seems to be a good deal of sympathy for folks of these islands they're not generally portrayed in a negative light but it's still offensive to kind of you know co-op someone's culture and pervert it and mm-hmm. not really show it in the way it is yeah so i just want to acknowledge that i do still love this movie it's something i've seen when i was a very young child so it has a special place in my heart but as an adult i have to acknowledge this is not cool and i wish it hadn't been that way so. yeah and it's and it's an issue in not just not just in the regards of how it, how it's portraying it but also like the fact that it's like insinuating a lot of lower uh lower yes. echelon intelligence in terms of the polynesian yes. islands and Absolutely. as somebody who's dating somebody who's a good chunk hawaiian i yeah. I, do, I do find that a little bit ew yeah. um it is it's offensive it yeah. is absolutely there's no way around it it's offensive i mean you know these are people with a rich and amazing culture and they do have religious beliefs and guess what it's not this no you know? no so to no. co-op that is no, unfortunately, no. I I went to Hawaii with my girlfriend recently, and um, I and yes. so far as I know, there was no statue dedicated to Mothra. There was no, <laughs> <laughs> there was no, there was no shrine to the twins. Then there's none of that at all whatsoever. And and you know what? What? Hey, 
want to come out and prove me wrong and show me where those statues are, I'll go to them. Well, first you have to find Infant Island because apparently it's a practice of that or, island. Or so. Beirut Island, as it is in the English uh, translation ah, version. Yeah, they changed uh, some some stuff here and there from translation stuff. Interesting. But interesting. Uh, but before we go to the American yes. and any form of the American portion of this, we should acknowledge the fact that we are here in Japan. Damn it! And uh, should we also talk about our sources before we dig in? Because I yeah, think um, I'm going to. No? Yes. I'm, okay. I'm, great. Yep. So we are we are talking about two giant figures. Um, we have a couple of different sources involved in our research here. We have Ishiro Honda, A Life in Film, that wonderful biography um, uh, that, that I think has changed the game in terms of researching any form of material of this nature. I agree. It's, uh, yeah, they, they met extensively with his family, with mm -hmm. his colleagues. You know, they went through a lot of materials and they have synopses for almost all of his films half of which are not available, more than half of which are not available in the West. So yeah. um, if you are a Honda fan and you think he's only done kaiju work, kaiju is like a half of what he's done. Um, <laughs> we'll, so we'll I get highly, we'll get into that highly recommend this book. <laughs> yeah, this book will really kind of fill in the gaps for you and let you know a lot more about him as a filmmaker. So, yeah. yeah. Ichiro Honda, Life in Film. Yeah. And I think we also had um, different versions of the movie we saw. Well, not different versions. Well, I will right? I will point out really quickly there is another book that I was able to find okay, uh similar similar auspices of the August Ragoni book from last episode. I found um a good chunk of sections from Japan's favorite monster uh <laughs> at which uh this is 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 2 years after Space Jam so hell of a title, but it is <laughs> written by Steve Rifle who's a co-author on Hishiro ah, Honda Life and Film. So this is like an early attempt. It is very explicitly the unauthorized biography of Godzilla and I'm like, "Oh, oh shoot." So uh there there's a there's some time involved before he got an official seal of approval, but at least he was doing the research. It's fantastic. Yeah. But yes, we yeah. also went through the commentaries on these films, yep. and mm -hmm. um, our commentaries were different. Now mine had the authors of Ashira Honda: A Life in Film. Yours yes, had. I got the yeah. yeah, I got the Masters of Cinema edition. Uh, which is kind of, you know, the UK version of Criterion, I think, mm -hmm. is what Masters of Cinema is. And so in my version, I had a David Callett commentary, who I think does the Criterion commentary for the Godzilla firms. He does. Films, yeah. Right? yeah. Uh, and then I also had a small little featurette uh, with Kim Newman. So that, that's what I have. Oh, Kim Newman. I love Kim Newman. He's been very helpful in our Japanese exploration, <laughs> oddly enough. Like the his, his history of the Invisible Man movies, he brought up two Invisible Man silent films from America. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I, I you telling me there's more of these things? Uh, it, but yeah, no. It, we, we were, we've been blessed that the kaiju territory has so yes. much coverage that well covered at this yes. point it's a matter of editing rather than finding um that's right wh whereas opposed to like last episode like it was me digging it was like I, like you and i were both digging in different respects and trying mm -hmm. to figure out like okay is there anything related yeah. to this movie and, it, and yeah. it was more like no we have to more talk about the people behind it this mm -hmm. one though we can get into some specifics but i mm -hmm. wanna mm -hmm. i wanna talk about our our creative man of the hour, Great. Mr. Ishiro Honda. So Rashmi, Excellent. give the folks of YBR the spiel on Honda. How did he get Great. here? Who was the Ishiro yeah. Honda and how did he become to be? So the first thing I'll call out, because I think everyone who writes about him calls this out about his personality. He is not your typical director type A personality, right? We're always hearing about 
the Kubricks of the world and, you know, people who are control freaks and yelling so, at their actors. So he and, doesn't think that cameras are just non-human things he can hang exactly. out with? Gotcha. Yeah. Exactly. So, he so he doesn't So he doesn't go to a human like Tom Cruise and say, you're not a camera? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Maybe the one person uh, yeah, would I'm happy if he did that. <laughs> the impression we normally have a director is very domineering, type A, control freak, yells at people, very, you know, that, that that's kind of the and you know someone like kurosawa that's that's kurosawa's personality right <laughs> honda yeah honda is very different he's he literally called himself i'm just a weed in a garden which i think is so sweet he's very kind of unassuming calm <laughs> compassionate can i can doesn't I... have to get all the laurels he's fine being the you know assistant director he's mm-hmm. not going to be an egomaniac about it just seems like an amazing person to hang out with i mean you know obviously everybody has their flaws and their issues but in general in a professional mm-hmm. setting his sets uh were generally pleasant places to be mm-hmm. um, yeah i got the american so... translation of that quote by the way it says i'm just a dude man <laughs> exactly. Like he's exactly. the big. Le- he's been so- the way you read he about is, him. He is he's kind a little of like bit of Lebowski. Yeah, yeah he's, he's got, got a Lebowski got a about him. I'm not Mr. Yeah. Honda. You're Mr. Honda. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's just very, very, uh, very different personality. He's, a, you know, we would have called him a beta until that got taken over in the zeitgeist and became something awful. But, how how but about he instead is, he's just a kind old dude? He's just a really <laughs> nice guy. Really nice guy, and he and he can be powerful without being a jerk about it right yeah. like you can have power without being a jerk about it which boy wouldn't we all like that right like when you think about who would i like mm. it as, as a boss like i'd much like much rather have honda as a boss than korozawa so yeah um so yeah so so really nice guy so he grew up he had and part of this people say maybe comes from the fact he had a very stable happy childhood he had <laughs> a very supportive family that's another um, his, uh that's another uh rarity <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Like no dysfunctionality in his family. Everybody loved each other. Everybody supported each other. You know, most of the decisions he took that other families would be like, what? What are we, movie director? His family was just really supportive of him. When he picked a woman he wanted to marry, you know, her family was all, you know, opposed to it. And his family's just like, yeah, cool. If that's who you want to marry, great. Go for it. You know, so very supportive family. His father is a Buddhist uh, monk. So in Japan, uh, Zen monks tend not to get married, but many other sects of Buddhism in, in Japan, uh, monks actually get married, priests get married. And in fact, it's almost like a family business. Like you will be a priest or a monk. You'll live in the, uh, you know, the, to, the to temple grounds and then you'll have children. And oftentimes one of your sons will take over the temple when you move on. So it's kind of, you know, kind of a, you know, it's just like being a, you know, a plumber or something. Right. Um, so, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so so that's why if people are like, how can a Buddhist monk have children? Uh, in Japan, that is an okay thing. You could be a married uh, with children Buddhist monk. That's okay. Um, and so, yeah, so he grew up in this very peaceful, loving household. Uh, grew up for the most uh, early childhood, very much in, in the countryside, and then moving to Tokyo as he got older. Um, loved seeing films from childhood. You know, this is true of many of the directors we talk about. He saw a film shoot in the streets of Tokyo at one point, and that's when he's really like, ooh, I want to be a director. This is super mm-hmm. cool. And he actually joined the inaugural film class at Nihon University. So they were kind of making up the curriculum as they went along. They didn't really have a plan. And I don't think he got too much out of the academic side of things, but he made a lot of connections, right? Mm -hmm. And so there were these kind of um, meetings and clubs and stuff that he could be a part of. Sounds like film school, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Well, you can speak to it better than I can. Yeah, it sounds like a film school, all right. (laughs) 
Yeah, I didn't get a degree worth shit, but I made a lot of friends. <laughs> like, <laughs> learn hey, how to use the, the equipment. That's why every movie is about that. All yeah, those that's what that, film school. Yeah, like, yeah, just like the ending of Game of Thrones. Apparently, I've yeah. never watched a lick right. of that show apart from the first season. I never will. Anywho, back to um, back to Honda. So, oh, and this is a cool connection. I hadn't made this connection before. It wasn't until I read this biography. So thanks, biography. Good book. Um, remember last week when we were talking about The Invisible Man, we talked about this Takarazuka review, which had an all-female cast where the females were dressed as males. And, mm-hmm. You know, we talked about that last last podcast. But it turns out that that guy who started that Takarazuka review was actually the person who founded this Photographic Chemical Laboratories, or PCL, which was the small independent studio mm-hmm. that Honda joined when he was young. And then that later merged with another small studio to to become Toho. Ooh. So all of it's coming together. Yeah, all these little bits and pieces we learn about comes together. And so while he's at Toho, very similar to Kurosawa, and, and by the way, go listen to our high and low episode where we cover this a little bit, but um, Yamamoto was obviously this mentor director who was there. He mentored several of the famous Japanese directors who mm-hmm. came after him, and he was part of that. Now, we do have to take a little diversion to talk about his military life. So um, Honda was very much a pacifist. He was anti-war. He did not want to go fight in the war, but you know, it wasn't like they were really giving people a, a, a choice, right? He <laughs> yeah, got drafted. No. Yeah. You know, Japan was a very militarist country at this time. And specifically uh, around 1935, 36, in that era, mid 30s, he got drafted. And he had the unfortunate just coincidence of being in the same unit in the military that some people came out of and tried to conduct a coup. So there's an event in Japanese history called 226. It's actually February 26, 36, 1936, where a small group from the military tried to assassinate the prime minister and others in government and take over the government. And actually, Hirohito, who had become emperor by this point, um, actually did not support this coup. And so the coup was shut down and all these folks were punished. And unfortunately, Honda got caught up in that because this military unit that these coup attempt folks came from, nobody wanted them around Tokyo, right? Because it was, you may, what if they try to do this again, right? So basically that whole unit just got shipped off to China. Mm -hmm. um, And in punishment for what they had done, they got sent back to the war front several times. So a normal service time would have been 18 months. Poor Honda got stuck, you know, got sent to China in 36, uh, got sent back uh, several times. His military service essentially extended until 1946 when he came back to Japan. And so why that impacts his career, not only obviously the horror of it, the PTSD of it, but also the fact that while he was gone, Good old Bone Spurs Kurosawa, as you'll remember, got a doctor to write him notes so he didn't have to go to the war. He had a wealthy family. He had connections. He was able to sit it out. Ow, so my back. Career, Ow, my exactly, back. <laughs> exactly. So Kurosawa's career is really taking off during this time while Honda's just in and out of military service. Mm-hmm. Now, I do want to talk about just one particular, a couple parts of his service that I think are important just because they relate to Japanese history as well. So one of the jobs he was given to do uh, in 1939 when he was in China mm-hmm. um, was to, so actually 1939 is when he's drafted. So let me just clarify. I think 36 is when the coup happened, but 39, I think, is when he was drafted. In any case, um, he was sent to China and he was put in charge of what was extremely euphemistically called a comfort station. Now, if you're thinking this is just a nice place with tea and bathrooms or whatever, it is not. 
Um, it is a place that women were brought to and were forced to perform services for men over and over and over again. It's a horrible part of, you know, there were many, many war crimes committed by Japan in World War II. Yeah. And this is one of them, which is essentially uh, enslaving women. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm, you know, once again, Honda, it's not like he was excited to do this. He didn't volunteer for it. He didn't he didn't want to do this work. I think he tried to be as compassionate as he could be, given the situation he was in. Um, and he did actually write about it in 1966, which is pretty unusual because Japan for the longest time denied that any of this ever happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so there's a um, there's an element of like if uh, like to pause on that and reflect on that, mm. the the to understand where Honda is, you have to understand in a lot of senses how the government itself was operating to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. There's uh yeah. it's, 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 it's side note related, but like not, not too long ago, I was going through the history of Pearl Harbor with an, mm-hmm. with an audio book that I happened upon and mm-hmm. listening to, uh, and listening to that and looking up other information, like this is a government that, Procededly, not only because we're militaristic, but has various different factions, uh, like clinging towards one end of the spectrum or another in terms of like where do they want to pursue their power? Where do they want to mm-hmm. go up against America? There's like yeah. people that are at the forefront of Pearl Harbor that were initially yeah. on the risk of being assassinated by other people within the government. Yep. There yeah, is correct. And by the way, you know, the architect of Pearl Harbor, who's also named Yamamoto, yeah. he didn't want to do this. Like he knew he had studied at Harvard actually. He was he was generally a fan of America. Yeah. Um, and he knew, like he knew just from a strategic and tactical point that once you go try to fight a war with America, you've lost already because it, it, of the, just the the tremendous war power, the the industrial power of it, America will eventually be exactly. And there's this, there is a very much a cult esque mentality surrounding the country at this time that is in, yes. that in that in, encourages violence at a split second. So basically, like mm-hmm. Honda, if he didn't do this, bang, shot in the head, dead. Oh no, there was he had no choice. He had yeah. absolutely no choice. Yeah. Um, and 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 he didn't have a choice to be in charge of this company station which i'm sure disgusted him right that like i said he was anti-war he's a pacifist his father's a buddhist monk he grew up in a mm-hmm. temple this yeah. is not, not his style not That's not, not even close to his in. first choice i'm sure his first no. choice was picking flowers in a field this is exactly not, you know, like, exactly or exactly. i guess if he's the if he's the Lebowski of of Japan, then his first choice was to just hang out at the bowling alley with Walter and uh, Donnie. But you know, I did, yeah. And there's stories actually in a subsequent deployment he had to China. There's stories that um, you know he they gave him a, jo- a job to kind of be like a supply clerk. You know, he would go to the markets and buy supplies and mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah, and he actually wore Chinese clothes when he went to the market. He learned some Chinese. Like he's really trying to, you know be a nice person because obviously he knew you know by this time of course it was clear that there were war crimes committed and you mm-hmm. know chinese people were not oh, yeah. too fond of the japanese you know no um, so he's really trying <laughs> and, and with good reason with good absolutely yeah. good reason um and so um so he's it's 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 painful to hear about you know he's yeah. really trying to do what he can but he's just caught in a system that's so disgusting and terrible um Agreed. and so yeah. You know, eventually he he was taken prisoner of war in China. He was kind of lucky that he was taken prisoner of war in China because he was treated relatively well, got returned back to Japan seven months after the war. Um, and in between, like every once in a while, he'd get a little bit of leave and come back. And so he did get married to a woman named Kimmy. Um, she was 
what's called in Japan a script girl. It's kind of the continuity person, right? right? Um, and so that that was her job at Toho. So he married someone from the industry, and and ever after she would always read through his scripts, give him comments. Um, was kind of a little bit of a creative collaborator uh, for him. Um, and then also in one of these trips back in 1942 is when he got to meet uh, Eiji Suburaya. So um, that was also kind of, you know, you know, it wasn't like they were necessarily working together a lot then or knew that they would be in the future. Well, but the of, first meeting. Uh, of course not. Eiji yeah. Suburaya was too busy looking through frame by frame of King Kong going like, how the fuck did they do it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. Is it magic? What is it? <laughs> And of course, spying. You know, don't forget that part. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, <laughs> that too. But 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 really, he was focused yeah. on like I'm, I'm only spying so I can maybe discover secrets behind King Kong. Who knows? <laughs> like, oh, uh, maybe that's what he was spying for. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's why that. he maybe that's why he agreed to make those propaganda films. That's a he's good just interpretation. Like, if I spy, maybe I can spy, quote unquote, on Willis O'Brien's studio. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Nah. So anyway, forty six. He gets back to Toho. Uh, there's some labor in rest. We'll talk about that more. Actually, there's a sub subsequent film we're going to do that actually Shin Toho produced. So we'll talk about Shin Toho then. Um, so we'll save that sidebar for, for a future episode. Yeah. Um, but he was given a first director role, which was actually for a documentary. And I think this is important because we see that documentary style in several of his films, including mm -hmm. Godzilla has parts of that in yep. it, right? So so the first director role uh, in Japan, you know, they still have these these things called Bunka Ega. Bunka Ega is like a little cultural short, uh, you know, mm -hmm. kind of, you know, I remember when I lived in Japan, I would see these. Isn't that funny? You know, they have like nice music in the background and they'll be like, you know, profiling like this hundred year old man has been making traditional Japanese paper in his family for Six centuries or whatever. It was the precursor to PBS, essentially. Is that yes, what yes, hearing? exactly, yeah. exactly. In fact, a lot of these Bunka Ega where they appear is on NHK, which is the national broadcaster of Japan. <laughs> so yes, exactly. Okay. So you'll have like a program that ends at like, you know, uh, I don't know, 10 minutes till the hour. And then you'll have a little seven minute short film about the guy who's made paper in his family for. And then centuries. one minute of like, please, please, if you want to support your local station, <laughs> we need. They don't, well, they get government money because they're not like the U.S. Oh, so, good. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they don't have to do that. No pledge drives. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh that that sounds like heaven on earth. I, it's actually I wonder, really nice. I, yeah. I wonder I wonder what that feels like. Yeah. Uh, why can't we have nice things? Because <laughs> capitalism, Rashmi, because capitalism. Got to make exactly. money on your own. Pull your up by your bootstraps. Nobody's going to give you yeah. jack crap. <laughs> Anywho, though. So he does, yeah. Anyway, so he does this short documentary. Um, and, and, you know, kind of a nice career arc for him is that his career in the beginning, as well as at the end, he does assistant director work for Kurosawa. Mm -hmm. And actually, if you um, watch Kurosawa's film Stray Dog, which is a great film, it's a, it's a Japanese noir Mm -hmm. um, and it's all about a police detective played by a a, a beautiful young Toshiro Mifune who um, basically loses his gun in the mm. middle of Tokyo. And of course, the problem is that the gun was taken by a criminal who is now committing crimes with his gun. Yeah. Um, and so there are large parts of the film where um, Mifune's character is just walking around Tokyo trying to find his gun. And he's going to some pretty unsavory neighborhoods at the time. Mm -hmm. And of course, Mifune is a star, right? He, we're not going to send him to do all this crappy walking around crappy neighborhoods. So they send Honda and a cameraman 
to go do that work. And it's actually Honda's legs that you're seeing walking <laughs> through uh, when you see. Yeah, exactly. Because he actually, you know, he's meant to be like kind of in a soldiery uniform. Uh, so so Mifune, obviously, he's not going to go into a bad neighborhood dressed as a, like a detective because, you know, people will, you know smell pork let's say um <laughs> and so so he puts on his old soldier's uniform to go kind of go around kind of as a bedraggled returned soldier to walk around these crappy neighborhoods looking for his gun and actually they had honda do that and honda of course was a bedraggled returned uh soldier so yeah yeah so so you see his legs you see his legs in that film Beautiful. Uh, and actually that is also a very documentary style part of that film and if you want to see what did tokyo look like in that kind of post-war uh time it's a it's a good it's a good view of what it looked like that's, so, that might anyway. be an interesting side comparison for ballyhoo later on is to t- kind of go through that That'd there are some great yeah. japanese noirs yeah that we could cover um stray dog is a great one there's a lot in and it's a kurosawa film so there's a lot of complexity to it you know there's kind of this doppelganger set up between mm-hmm. the criminal and mufune's cop character and then mufune's mentor is of course takashi shimura one of my favorites who's also in in mosra and so there's kind of that father-son relationship between them and it, it's a really it's a really good film um, so noir fans, check it out. Stray Dog. Uh, in any case, uh, Honda then starts to get some more, you know, feature uh, films. And 51 is his feature debut, uh, a film called The Blue Pearl, which is about, you know, these women who are pearl divers and kind of, you know, the romantic entanglements and such. Uh, and it relates back to that first documentary he did because the documentary was uh, about the area where these pearl uh, fishers are uh, and so he got to kind of pioneer some of this underwater photography and so on and that made it into this feature film as well mm-hmm. um, and then he kind of goes about you know um, doing some of these more of these kind of melodrama films right and and he does have some commercial success with them yeah and then Godzilla appears and it's a fluke occurrence right <laughs> because basically Honda was not supposed to do that film. It was kind of, you know, the producer who I think you'll fill us in in a, in a moment, Tanaka. So I'll, I'll leave you to talk about him. Yeah. But, um, Tanaka came up with this idea, uh, offered it to another director who kind of was like, mm, this is kind of weird. I don't want to do this. And then Honda had a project canceled at the same time. And Honda had always been into kind of science. Like he, I think, cute thing about him is like he would actually literally go talk to a lot of scientists to kind of learn background on some of these movies he was making um and so he found Godzilla to be interesting and that's kind of how it happens so Honda took it on you know he started uh, working with Subaraya which and that's another interesting relationship because uh, um they were not friends outside of work Subaraya was a bit older mm-hmm. uh, he's kind of older than this generation that came through yeah. they were not friends outside of work but they had a pretty good professional collaboration because basically the way Toho set it up in the is that it's essentially like these film had two directors. So the kind yeah. of special effects person would direct their pieces. The other person would direct their pieces, but of course they have to collaborate. So it all comes together. I think there's um, a, so there's, they, there's an inherent trust. I think it, I think it's yeah. just kind of like necessity necessity and really good communication and planning Mm -hmm. right like yeah okay yeah you got to make the eye line here because i'm going to put this here like all that stuff has to be planned out right yep Um, it's like the earliest form of watching this isn't a great comparison because currently these people are rightfully so fighting for a union but it is kind of just like the element of how the producers of a marvel film will work with the vfx team early on to preset certain set pieces like there is a communication where they understand like this has to be achieved and it has to go in line with this thing that's being written out by whatever filmmaker we farmed out like there is exactly. a there's a level of communication needed for that regardless yeah. of the treatment yeah. that they're undergoing exactly. right now but yeah 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 so 
So that's kind of, you know, really interesting way that's set up. And then, you know, after God's obviously Godzilla is a success. And afterwards, he's kind of alternating between melodramas and more kaiju films. So he's doing like Rodan in color, that's first color kaiju film. And then this is an interesting note that I did not know before. Um, we may cover a film called Throne of Blood in one of our subsequent episodes. Throne of Blood is Kurosawa's interpretation of Macbeth. Yes. Um, and so Kurosawa originally wrote the script and wanted Honda to direct it. But, you know, whatever reasons took over and it didn't end up happening. I think it would have been interesting, but it's an amazing film. I mean, obviously, Kurosawa is a genius and he does genius things. May or it. may I not talk it... about it. I don't know. Yeah, we may or may not. I don't know. Yeah. I'm teasing it. Maybe we'll see if we get to it. But anyway, um, I don't know. It would have been a very different film, I think, if Honda directed it. It would have been good, too, I think, but it just would have been different. So, yeah, um... I, I, I but like we'll we'll get into why I'm like I have more curiosity with that than I would normally have. But yeah, mm -hmm. it would be interesting to say the least. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, and then. Yeah. So, you know, the moth or script writer, there were a couple of script writers who were working on kaiju films at the time. One was kind of more serious. And then there was Sekizawa, who's more kind of lighthearted. Mm -hmm. And so they picked Sekizawa to work on Mothra. Yeah. Um, and it was based on a serialized novel, got a big budget. It was a big success. It was aimed at families. And I think the major point I took away from the David Collett cam commentary was he essentially buckets, right? There's the Godzilla films, and then there's the Mothra type films. And the Godzilla films are more aimed at adults. They're more serious. Um, they're films that are more based in reality. They're films where the authority figures are meant to be the real kind of heroes and the ones who are doing the, the actions. Right. Um, and in general, it's about a film where the monster is the bad guy and the resolution of the film is the destruction of the monster. And then you have the Mothra-style films, which are more fantasy-driven. They're more directed towards children. They have more humor and comedy in them. And the, um, the it's not about authoritarian figures. It's about just everyday people. So like in this film, like journalists, right? You just have average yeah. everyday people are the heroes of the film. And oftentimes the conflict is between people. It's not between people and the monster. It's between people and people. And the mon the monster is somehow involved in the resolution of that conflict between people. So right. that's kind of how he buckets those two types of movies. And I think part of that comes from the fact that this scriptwriter that they chose was one who did more lighthearted fare and Mothra is a more lighthearted kaiju film than Godzilla was. Right. Um, and then um, we have the Peanuts. We'll talk about them more as we walk through the film, but the Peanuts are the two uh, twins who are, mm -hmm. you know, kind of pop stars at the time. They were actually filmed completely separate from the other actors. And so actors, yeah. obviously, they would set up bylines and stuff to kind of make it work, but they were filmed separately. Uh, there was an alternate ending. We can get to that later as well. Um, and then eventually, you know, Honda kind of starts to tire of sci-fi fair. He still makes some of it, but I think, you know, he kind of took a break in 1963 because he was kind of tired of it. Um, and then towards the end of his career, actually, his last efforts were once again going back to be a, 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 an AD for Kurosawa on films like Kagemusha and Ron. and Right, Dreams which he seemed to prefer than having to go down the same well that yeah. uh, that Tanaka would take him on, which, yeah. speaking of Tanaka, it's time. Yes, it's, please. it's time. Tomoyoki please. Tanaka, who I... When we were deciding who's going to tackle what, like normally I would love to tackle the director, but Tomi Tomiyuki Tanaka falls in line with, do we know as much about him as we say do know about Ishiro Honda? Because he is, I found him in researching kaiju films, uh, even as far back as when we were doing our E.G. Superaya deep dive with Invisible Man. I was like, I, I sidetracked into kaiju for a couple of days. And 
Tomiyuki Tanaka spoke to me in a way that I wasn't expecting because as a Halloween fan, if you're a Halloween fan, you have a a, a respect, if not begrudging, at least an admirable respect for uh, Mustafa Akkad, who was the godfather of the Halloween series. He was a he was a filmmaker in his own right, making films like Lion in the Desert before he gave $300,000 to John Carpenter and Urban Yablons to make Halloween. And that would become his major source of income the rest of his life. His son, Malik, now runs the studio. Um, but the, Tanaka has that same vibe about him, but not just for one franchise, but for a bunch of franchises. Tanaka mm-hmm. is essentially the kaiju father. Like he is. He the, is. He, yes. He, like literally got ideas when he's like flying over the ocean. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and, and his story I found interesting, albeit brief. Um, he was born in April 26, 1910 and to a pretty wealthy family in the outskirts of Osaka in the Yamanashi, uh, uh in the Yamanashi realm. Tanaka had a love of movies early on. He would reportedly, as Steve Rifle wrote, noted, walk miles upon miles to the nearest cinema where they were showing adventure films, ninja stories, and tragedies. And I was like, ninja stories? Um, but uh, but uh, the uh, his favorite film uh, that he would cite for years would actually be The Covered Wagon because of uh, he, he hmm. was enthralled by the cinematography of it. Um, he graduates from Kansai University, where he majors in economics. While he was there at school, he connected with a drama troupe, and he had a secret passion to be an actor, as we all do at certain points in our lives. Um, and, and he would later go on to uh, hang out with the Shingeki movement in Osaka. He yep. would end up leaving after he realized, like, I'm okay. I'm not great. I, I, I'm I'm. I, I'm self-aware. This is no. I'm not a good actor. No, I'm. I'm fine. I. I'm and by the decent. way, the Shingeki folks also influenced our first film. Yes, first, first film, Page of Madness. So yes, all connected. Exactly. So there we are. We are tying a lot of this. It has the interconnective tissue into it, yeah. and this would lead his his decision to be like, I'm fine. I'm average, if you were, mm-hmm. uh, in front of a in front of a stage on on a stage. This would lead him to towards directing and producing plays on stage in the 1930s. He then enters the film industry in 1940, first working for, and I got two different, uh, I don't know if they are the same one and I'm just misreading the name, but like one entry had it as the Taisho Film Company. Another one had it as Taiho Iga. Um, but basically that- It's probably, they're both, okay. Ega just means movie. Yeah, okay. Ega means movie. Okay, so Taisho so- Ega. Taisho Film Company. Gotcha. Thing. Okay, so then he works for the Taisho Film Company. Uh, the next year, though, Taisho would be consumed by Toho, and that alludes back to when we were talking about where basically a lot of these studios get conglomerated into three key groups. Um, yeah. So uh, the 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 trajectory of his career begins with him working in the literary department before becoming mentored and prepped for the role of producer by Toho chief Uwa Mori. Um, Mm -hmm. And his first film as a producer would be Until the Day of Victory from 1944. From there, he would continue to make a handful of films before the end of World War II. Following the end of the war, his rise keeps going as he starts working on films such as Those Who Make Tomorrow, co-directed by Akira Kurosawa, and action Mm -hmm. films like Lady from Hell, directed oh. by Motoyoshi Oda who is the director of Godzilla Raids Again which mm. if it's a, if God's if Lady from Hell is as much fun as Godzilla Raids Again I think I would gladly sit down with that movie um and uh the uh 
and by the way, the t- those who'd make tomorrow an early Bafune Kurosawa collaboration. Um, yes, and this uh, and he and one of the first films that he worked on is a film composed with the music composed by Akira. Ifukube, who would be right. a key component of composing mm-hmm. of music for Godzilla, yes. Yeah, to to the point where Bear McCrary rightfully so adopted those notes for Godzilla King of the Monsters. His score mm-hmm. for that is still fucking brilliant because it's a good mm-hmm. mesh of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, and then Rifle talked about in the book Jap- J- uh, Japan's Monster, he talked about a very interesting incident uh, that uh, that he that the that Tanaka found himself in, um, and I want to make sure I read this correctly. So, in 1948, Tanaka was among a group of producers, actors, and other employees who left Toho to protest the purging of 1,200 supposedly communist workers and its crumbling yeah. relations with the labor unions. For the next yeah. few years, he worked with the Society of Film Artists, led by the exiled directors. Kaijuro Yamamoto and Akira Kurosawa, who had also mm-hmm. left Toho. Tanaka then returned to Toho in 1952, wooed back by his old friend Uamori, and then two years later, he created a monster a la Gajira. So, following uh, Gajira, which is a huge success for Tanaka, it's a huge success, he's like, I've got a calling. Tanaka would become the firm purveyor of these kaiju films his involvement would span from script development on down to markability and i wrote down this note in effect for my opinion this is basically the japanese david o selznick or at least the david o selznick of monster movies um or maybe even a kevin feige-esque where he yeah is... i think it's more feige because he's the visionary and he often comes up with a lot of the stories like you know he's flying over the pacific and he's like hey wouldn't it be cool if there's a kaiju on an island i'm gonna write that, that you know? and, and actually <laughs> yeah. I, actually it's probably better to compare it to feige because david yeah. o selznick insight in, insists the idea that maybe uh that tanaka was a raging asshole and it it doesn't sound yeah. like he is. No, I don't think so. I, don't, I think it, no. Tanaka, to me, Tanaka seems like less of a guy who's fighting with all these directors and all the you know BS that we covered in our third man episode um, and more a creative kind of visionary. And mm-hmm. he would kind of set the vision yeah. and then and then let the folks who are in charge go go do their thing. Right? That's true. Yeah, he isn't as interfering as, as no, Selznick not, is. not at I, all. I think my Selznick comparison comes from like how involved he is, like how how yeah. immersed he is in every step of the process. And there he's is- He's not just a money man. Maybe that's a way to put it, right? No, like yes. Producer, Ex- he's not just a money man. He is very much more involved in the creative process. Gr- great yeah. point. Because David O. Selznick yeah. would actively lose money just to make sure it lived up to his fucking vision. Um, <laughs> uh, now, he grasped at the potential of each outing, whether it was monster versus monster. He, and he started that process with Gigantus the Fire Monster or capitalizing on a thread of like space films, like so the Mysterians, Battle in Outer Space. Um, and his overall goal for Toho, especially with somebody like Eiji Tsuburaya at the helm, was to stay ahead of competitors in special effects. And there's a fun story about Mothra in terms of like, if there's one paranoid element of Tanaka, it is making sure that his special effects are not revealed to the to the to other competitors he does not want people stealing the edge that he has on these visual effects um he is also described as a workaholic this comes from steve rifle's book um i'm not sure how to describe it but he is just amazingly diligent or i guess earnest special effects director teruvoshi uh, nakano said 
I once heard this story about an episode where Mr. Tanaka went to see Mr. Masumi Furimoto, a high-ranking Toho producer, to get some project authorized. Mr. Fujimoto glanced at the proposal, then went right to bed. You know what Mr. Tanaka did? He patiently waited at the corner of the room. <laughs> Mr. Fujimoto woke up, woke up several hours later and found Tanaka was still sitting there in the corner. <laughs> what in the world are you That's doing? That's a little creepy. <laughs> <laughs> what, are you, what in the world are you doing? I can't even take a leak, Mr. Fujimoto said. Then Tanaka answered, I won't move until you okay that project. What persistence. Well, at least he didn't say something like, I just like to watch you sleep. That is true. Yeah, that, 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 I, I would rather it be going, like, I'd rather have somebody waiting outside of my bathroom door going, like, you still have to finish editing that episode. Bah! Well, at least you weren't saying anything else during that time. Now, f- the, the story of Masura or Mathra, the, he 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 commissions this story, and you and I both kind of made a similar note about the idea of appealing to women. Uh, mm-hmm. with these yes, films. very much so. Yeah, uh, it seemed basically he was he was going off of a very uh, uh, binary concept of like, well, we need to have a female monster. Well, we can't so, put a bow okay. in her hair, like you know. This is actually this is actually something I can even give professional context to because. I had a job at one point where I was working for Disney in Japan, mm-hmm. and one of my jobs was try to make the films perform better there, the new films, right? Mm-hmm. The new animated films that were being made. And the challenge was a lot of Japanese movies are directed towards women because it, it's kind of like the ladies' night in the bar, right? The assumption is if women want to go to a movie, they'll drag some man along with them. And so that's how we get people to go to movies, right. basically. Um, and so, um, you know, in my era, when I was doing this, there was a, I don't know if this is as much the case in, in the Mothra era, but you know, when I was working on this, there is a group of women called office ladies, not the podcast, um, but they're called <laughs> office ladies. They're basically like, you know, receptionists and, you know, administrative assistants in companies. And they tend to be, they tend to have a lot of disposable income because they're often living still at home with their parents because they're not married yet, um, but they are working. So they have an income. And so they were a big driver, you know, kind of like when you hear about like, I don't know, men 18 to 24 or something drive movie going in the U S mm-hmm. these office ladies actually drive a lot of the movie going in, in Japan. Mm. Um, and so we had a problem. Uh, I'll take a quick diversion here to just explain how I fit in here, but we had a problem because we were targeting all of our movies to office ladies but they're kind of these family films and it would make more sense to target them towards families and children and um so anyway i won't get into all the detailed work i did there but but it is not uncommon in japan to say we are targeting this film to women and yes there is a sexist aspect to that but it's also kind of just backed up by the fact that they kind of drive a lot of the movie going public in Mm, japan and so that's why you know same kind of strategic decision was made like okay if women go to the movies men will go to the movies with them so let's make a movie that women want to go to and that's exactly so they made kind of mothra was intended to be a a, a film that that women would be prompted to go see um Mm. so yeah yeah. and, and that which makes the which makes it interesting to see the final result in that respect is like there's not like it's not that this film is devoid of action by any stretch, but there is a concerted effort to, I don't want to say contextualize the, the, the chaos, but uh, there's a, there's an effort to justify Mothra 
that is so heavily expounded upon because of Nelson yes. Clark. <laughs> um, uh, my favorite, my favorite name. Get to, we'll since, get to Nelson Clark. Yeah. My favorite name for a figure that shouldn't have that name since Johnny West in Three Strangers. Exactly. Um, Peter Laurie should not be named Johnny West. It's hilarious. <laughs> That's it's funny. It should be hilarious. You need to watch that movie. It's really great. I've seen it. I've seen oh, it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah. So you understand. I just what didn't I'm remember about. the name, but you're totally yeah, right. Johnny West, because that role wasn't yeah. wrote, written for him. Um, right. But no. Uh, so Tanaka was con- uh, commissioned a story from Shinichiro Nakamura to conceive the new story for the film, and he collaborated with Takahiko Fukunaga and Zanai Hota, and the resulting mm-hmm. story was The Growing Fairies and Mothra. <laughs> Um, yes, so this was that yeah. serialized novel that they mm-hmm. used. And um, yes, in my commentary, there was some discussion around whether Hota was a man or a woman. Um, there were some people saying, oh, look, there she Hota was actually a woman. And mm-hmm. so now we have actually a woman writing this film. I think later research proved that that was not true, but there was some debate around It's that the B. Traven mystery of Japan. <laughs> 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 like, who is B. Traven? Who is Zanai Hota? Uh, yeah. And the concept of the fairies or the shobijin uh, yeah. emanates, it seems, from another producer at some point during the early phases of production. Uh, that was mm-hmm. something that I found interesting. A latter-day interview with Tanaka kind of confirms this. Um, mm-hmm. And that is part of the driving toward the female perspective. It led Tanaka to the emphasis of the fairies as the guardians of Infin mm-hmm. uh, Infin Infin Island, uh, mm-hmm. and thus their need for calling to Mothra. Um, now, yeah. uh, there are a lot of elements from that original story that are dropped completely. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. There are there are elements of like Fukada is not on the expedition initially, going to the island alone later. Uh, Fukada would remain on the island, then witness the Nelson kidnapping the fairies and the call to Mothra. The original mm-hmm. origin concepts I thought were very interesting and apparently featured a Christian overtone. Uh, that within the mythology, there are two gods, Ajima, male god of eternal night, and Ajiko, female goddess of daylight, who contrived the giant glowing egg, uh, Mothra, smaller eggs, and two humans for reproduction. So it was like a very mm-hmm. convoluted version of Genesis. <laughs> like, going like, all right, we need two humans for reproduction, but we also need smaller eggs, bigger eggs. Um, and mm-hmm. the smaller eggs, as the legend goes, hatch caterpillars that turn into moths, angering mm-hmm. Ajima. Ajima, in turn, condemns all living creatures to die, kills himself by tearing himself in four. This, in turn, sees Ajiko killing herself as well, doing the very same, but the four pieces of herself become the small fairies that dedicate their lives to the service of Mothra. So then they brought that fairy idea down to two um, by the end of this. And uh, Michiko initially, um, Michiko initially is uh, Chujo's assistant and the head of an activist group trying to get Nelson to release the fairies. Um, so those are elements that are completely reworked. Um, mm-hmm. And we have, as you talked about, the Russian-America proxy government called Relis. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. um, and uh, then the story basically gets in the hands of Shinichi Sekizawa, the writer. Uh, he proceed. Yeah. The writer then proceeds to cherry pick what he wants mm-hmm. from this script. His mm-hmm. uh, he has great quotes in here. I love. Sekizawa. He goes, my philosophy is just to add enough to keep to tell the story and keep it moving along. Um, and he uh, he remove he, he he's the one who decides to refer to the twins as Shobijin or the mm-hmm. small beauties because he said small mm-hmm. fairies from Infern Island was too long to write. And I'm like, <laughs> ah, that's true. <laughs> 
I don't want to work beyond what I'm required to. I have a game to watch later. God damn it. <laughs> like, I have places to be later on in the evening. God fucking damn it. Uh, and I wrote the note. At least she's honest. I uh, trimmed the four fairies down to two because I'm sure he found the word four hard to write as well. Um, and an idea of one of the fairies falling in love with one of the male leads was scrapped because Sekazawa said it took too much attention away from Mothra. So it, he sounds like a kaiju kaiju fanboy in a certain respect going like, ah, this is, we need more monster, damn it. <laughs> um, and uh, Mothra's cocooning herself on Tokyo Tower was originally supposed to be the national diet building, but Sekazawa felt that it wasn't spectacular enough. And looking at the two different uh, buildings, yeah, Tokyo Tower is a lot more cool than uh, than the yes, national diet, absolutely. diet building. Um, yeah. I, I, I said diet, but I think it's diet. It is diet. It is oh, diet. It it's is called diet? a diet. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, Ashira Honda's involvement, uh, as revealed through the, the biography, was that his primary interest, as you would expect, is the anti-nuclear anti themes as opposed to the fantasy elements. Um, and uh, there's a lot of stuff that was planned for this film that he didn't get to, uh, to shoot that would lend toward that. Uh, in fact, comparing this to Gojira is interesting because the emphasis on nuclear radiation and its effects are is not as prevalent as the fantasy elements in Mothra, I would argue. Um, but Hondas did say on the approach of it, and I love this quote, we wanted to do something that was new for the whole family, like a Disney or Hollywood type of picture. And apparently... There was a there was an ideal in his head of like I hope Disney gets to animate this into one of their feature films someday, and I'm like I would have loved that in the canon of Disney. That would have looked films. really cool. Yeah, it would have been amazing, and it probably yeah. would have fit in line with like 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 who I mean, like you know look look. I'm look. actually thinking Fantasia. I know it's mm. I mean I know it's a different type of story, but I could see because it is such a fantastical. There's such a weirdness to the story. It's um, but yeah, what, okay, what, you could go the more he, traditional Tinkerbell type route. Well, but, well, yeah. no, now you've got me thinking that Roy Disney needs to come back from the grave <gasps> and make Fantasia three thousand with uh, <laughs> with with Mothra as one of the segments. Um, now let's talk about the peanuts for a, for a second, because the only peanuts I'm aware of are children who charge five cents for therapy. Uh, but these two twins, uh, the peanuts, uh, were a pretty big pop culture deal or music deal yeah. in Japan. Do you know what, what can you tell us a little bit about them, Rush? Um, you know, I don't know a whole lot about them other than, you know, they were, um, they were twin sisters and that was definitely played up. Uh, and so you see kind of like, you know, their dialogue is kind of twin, you know, repeated between them as if they kind of share a brain kind of thing. Um, and, you know, as studios used to do in the time, the film and kind of the release of their music were kind of, you know, they were, to, you know, Elvis style, right? So it's kind of like, hey, you know, mm -hmm. love the film, buy the record and vice versa, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I don't know a whole lot more about them. I mean, they were in the subsequent Mothra films, so they continued to kind of be a part of that. I don't think they did too much other acting other than the Mothra films. There might be a reason for that because their uh, their handler, Sho Watanabe, uh, was apparently a little bit difficult to work with in terms of scheduling. Mm -hmm. um, he allowed the twins to participate in the film because of the uniqueness of the idea. Uh, and mm -hmm. this would prove difficult, though, when scheduling because Toho had to wrestle with commitments the duo made with Watanabe Productions for other things related to music. They were able to actually work this around in terms of scheduling because of their size in the film um they would be shot up against uh up against a uh, a separate screen 
while the normal sighted actors would interact with uh, dolls placed in the cage in place of the peanuts, and they would have their dialogue recorded so that they could respond back to it. Um, So that was kind of interesting. Basically, there's a tape recorder and two dolls uh, taking place, which I I think is a very nice practical solution. You know, it's not bad. Yeah, I mean, like we said, that kind of eyeline thing is important, right? When you have these kind of special effects, I I would love to have a cheap. I would love to have a cheap Thanos doll talking back to Captain America on the set. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now now it's all like tennis balls. or something right <laughs> yeah now we could talk about some scenes that aren't in the film before we go into the plot here because they have more to do with what would have been the more anti-nuclear element um and honda was very uh like i think he he kind of uh he i think i feel lamenting here um for a couple of different ideas first of all there was a removal of a bombed out section of the island uh there was going to be a section of infant island that had been hit by the atom bomb but the res- mm. bunch of restrictions were uh, forced the removal. There was a creation of the mold of, of a mold specific to the island, like the little yes. plants around that. The budget yes. costs put put an end to any of the art direction team pressing. Yeah, and, that. and I think the budget situation relates back to what you were talking about, which was Columbia Pictures insisted there had to be the, uh, the yeah. whole destruction of a city in the U.S. Basically, yeah. and so so much of the budget had to go to that destruction that they couldn't do all these things. And you're absolutely right. Like Hondo was actually really fascinated by the idea of these molds and, you know, mm. th- that you could make a juice from these molds that would, you know, <laughs> keep people from getting radiation sickness and yeah. whatever. And not um, only but that, they had no time for that and no and, budget for that. Not only that, but he really wanted to shoot second unit directly in Los Angeles, which probably would have been amazing mm-hmm. to connect yes. into the American ar- market. I agree. The, the yes. inflating because con- you can clearly tell this is B-roll. Yeah, no, it. it's archival footage of LA freeways yeah. and B-roll. Yeah, the Harbor Freeway. I saw that the Harbor Freeway sign. I'm like, oh, we're in LA. Okay. Yeah. Honda had this to say about the lamenting of the loss of these scenes. Um, Because it also talks about the survive, how the natives would have survived on the island if it was bombed out. How could they have survived? Honda said there was a mysterious drink made from something naturally occurring on the island. When Koizumi goes into the cave, the important thing is the image of the mold. I got a microscopic photo of mold and asked our art department to reproduce it. The, there were all these mysterious ferns with seven different colors, the big forest, but we couldn't create the atmosphere of the mold forest so well. That was disappointing, but it probably would have cost too much. I really wanted to create this mysterious scene on an island that had been bombed. I actually wrote that scene. So this stuff is written mm-hmm. and it ends up not going through. Yep. Um, yep. And you want to talk about the alternate ending? Too? Yeah. Let's talk about the alternate ending. Cause this has to do mm-hmm. with, again, with Columbia, Columbia's yep. insistence on like, you need to have an Americanized city and call mm-hmm. it new Kirk because why <laughs> the fuck not? Um, I and- <laughs> kept thinking new Jack city. I was like, Oh, it's not new Jack city. It's I, new Kirk. City. You know what? We need new Kirk city with William Shatner as a gangster. <laughs> I, know, I think we I do. I think we absolutely do. Mr. Spock is his <laughs> second Lieutenant. Um, no, Columbia had the stipulation with Toho in the contract that required the climax to take place in an American style city. This counteracted Toho's insistence that the sequence was too expensive to film resulting in a new proposed ending they sent a plea to columbia to allow this exchange and while they were waiting they had honda film it rather than wait for Mm -hmm. the reply columbia Mm -hmm. rejected it thus requiring the new kirk city sequence but the sequence had nelson and company taking the shinji hostage the shibiji the fairies hostage taking the shobijin yeah Mm -hmm. shobijin Uh, yep. Taking the Shobijin hostage at a volcano, 
resulting in Nelson yes. falling into a Dudamothra's Which would have been cool, right? Yeah. I would have liked that. I yeah. think that would have been cool. The footage Yeah, was, they destroyed they destroyed the footage. It's never developed. Stills it's only so survived. However, the yeah. fun part of that is the filming of that sequence was the first to take place in Kagoshima Prefecture near Mount Kirishima. And yep. there's a dummy of Nelson that is thrown into the volcano. Yes. When that yes. dummy was thrust in there, it was yes. found by locals who believed it was a suicide. Yeah, they called the police. They yeah. were like, hey, there's a body here. You got to come check it out. <laughs> this, is my favorite, yeah. this is my favorite line of note taking ever. This led the Honda, this led Honda and the crew to being scolded. Like, so I love it. It's like, you're not getting arrested. It's just like, shame on you it's <laughs> traumatic right i mean that's yeah. pretty traumatic for yeah people, so yeah I, yeah they, you, gotta, you gotta clean up come on agreed now let's let's jump into mothra as a plot let's jump into i had plot. one more point actually oh, before yes. we walked through the plot which was yeah uh, i'm trying to do this in all our episodes is just talking a little bit about the influences and commonalities mm -hmm. of this film to others now this is probably the one we can point to with the greatest influence right because this is not only a kaiju film but it's that kind of family friendly kaiju film and so that whole lineage of films that we have until today right to this very day yeah uh, people making these kind of more family-friendly kaiju films this is where it started so mm -hmm. huge influence probably the most you know between godzilla and mothra probably the most influential two movies from japan to ever be made so agree um yeah so huge influences um, and definitely that same theme we saw a little bit in Invisible Man, same thing about, about kind of capitalist greed. And in this case, when capitalist greed is kind of backed by government power, that those two things together will basically destroy the world, right? Mm -hmm. That kind of the potential for all of that to come together. Um, and that theme, obviously, we have that in a lot of apocalyptic films going forward, same theme. Yeah, right? the bad dog is off the leash when it comes to this commentary, so to speak. It, it, it gives, yeah. They are very unapologetically calling out capitalism and its, Absolutely. And its flaws. Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of these directors were leftists. Like I said, we'll mm -hmm. talk about Shinto a little bit in terms of that labor unrest and the union crackdown and all of that. But yeah, a lot of leftist directors um, and so they, you know, that's in there, that's in their movies. Um, and you know, the other thing that I just love about Mothra, we'll talk about it more when we talk about the plot walkthrough, but you know, she just keeps on going, right? Like you see all these scenes where like he's getting <laughs> shot and bombed and she never stopped. And it reminded me of Michael Myers, your favorite from yeah, Halloween, right? Yeah. Like one of the things people say is so creepy about Michael Myers is he never runs. He just, <laughs> you know, he's just super calm about everything. That is creepy. I, I, I mean, meant... Mothra isn't creepy. I think for Mothra, it's more heroic but you know that kind of that personality it's kind of interesting i met this hundred kilometer wide moth with the, <laughs> the, the startlingness of eyes and the darkest wings the devil's wings <laughs> like this yeah, yeah he, he 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 mothra she is a very persistent creature yes. she is on a yes. mission what is exactly that, what is that mission well in order to tell you about that we have to open up on a storm and a typhoon so to speak uh, and right from the get-go, we are we, we don't waste any time here. Right? There's not. I I would imagine that since we're already heavily into the kaiju genre, as it were, there's no need for the 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 larger expositional hiding like moments of a Gajira. Like we can kind of thrust ourselves right into this. Yet another ship disaster. Yeah, right? not another ship, ship disaster. Yeah, <laughs> caught caught between a typhoon and, a, and and radioactivity. And you know, I don't want to get too far and make too much of a big deal of this, but obviously, you know, the oceans and and seafaring life is a big deal to the Japanese. Obviously, mm -hmm. fish is a big staple of their diet. 
Um, to the point where actually Japan has a national holiday called Umi no Hi, which is, you know, the, the Ocean's Day. Mm-hmm. We have Ocean Day as a national holiday. So it's not unusual, I think, that that's why so many Japanese movies open with ship disasters. Yeah. So. And, I, and I should take that back. Like, I mean, actually, Gajira, the Lucky Dragon incident is our first real yeah, get-go. Absolutely. But there, I think there is a lot more bearing and waiting before Gajira arrives in full mm-hmm. force. Uh, there, but we are whisked to this boat that is that is careening and it is 11.4 east mi- miles east of Infant Island to which mm-hmm. the captain goes like, fuck, 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 fuck. No, exactly. no, no, don't go there, don't go there. Because yeah. they know of the mm-hmm. radiation that has hit That's the right. island. And so mm-hmm. uh, the we, w- w- within the next day, there are somehow survivors off of this island. And the score already goes into this very strange intonation that may or may not be the twins in a choral aesthetic. Mm. Uh, it does very. It does a very interesting sting, sting at that point when they're finding the survivors. The survivors are returned to the National Synthesis Nuclear Center. That's a mouthful. Uh, they're observed for radiation sickness, but they don't have any. They have none. Yeah. And uh, they and people keep asking the... Uh, they're trying to figure, figure out why it didn't happen. And at one point... Uh, we see that uh, some uh, the, a woman who, who might be a scientist in that room has taken a photograph, and then all of a sudden it's revealed that she is a photographer for the Nito Press. That's and right. That's when and she- just a quick, let me make a quick comment about her. We don't need to linger on her too long because she's not that central to this movie. But the actress's name is Kyoko Kagawa. And she's actually, she is a proper actress. She's uh, often plays like the young wife in a lot of Kurosawa movies. Mm. So um, she is a good actress. It's just not given much in this role. No, no, no. I thought this might be a love interest role for the prof- for the linguist. And I was wrong. I was <laughs> like, nope, nope, that's not happening. But she immediately exposes her her uh, counterpart in the room, Zen Fukada. Ah, uh, good Frankie, good old Frankie Sakai. I love yes. this guy. I love him so fucking yeah. much. So, I love so him, love obviously him, love a comedian, right? That's mm-hmm. what he's known for. That's what he's bringing to this role. Yep. But I think he does it, quits himself pretty well, given the role he's been given. I think he does a good job. He's not a bumbling yeah. idiot. No, he, like, no. Th- it's which, not like a Three Stooges movie, but there are elements of Three Stooges it, in him. It's not like so. sticking Richard, it's not like sticking Richard Pryor in Superman 3. Right. This is, he is taking the role seriously. He is yep. a social column reporter for Nito Press. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. the lead scientist there goes like, well, fuck, I guess you're here already. Let's might as well just get this over with. Uh, we have no idea what the fuck's going on with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't know why they don't have any radiation sickness. And then one of the survivors says, is it the red juice that the natives red gave to juice. us? The no red, red juice. Yeah. <laughs> and, and to which they go like, but that island's supposed to be uninhabited. Uh, uh, we also learn a little bit more about Zen. He is known as the snapping turtle because once he gets a hold yeah. of a story, he doesn't let it go. Right. Which, by the way, that doesn't really come up much, but I guess it's a cute name. So. It does come back um, in one amazing fight sequence. Um, yes. But, uh, yes, so nuclear testing has been happening on this quote-unquote uninhabited island, mm-hmm. and that's when it comes out, oh, there are actually people there. And, of course, the people doing the testing are the evil Relicican government. Yep, and, of course, we get a little bit of a newspaper montage, which I'll always yep. enjoy. And, and the newspaper boss, just a cameo once again, not a meaty role for him, but mm-hmm. one of my favorite Japanese actors, Takashi Shimura. <laughs> he's, a J- and- he's a J. Jonah Jameson-esque character. Yeah, he's, he's not, he's not <laughs> given much in this movie, but if you do want to see more of him, I think he does just a tour de force performance in Kurosawa's uh, Ikiru. He's Ikiru is... Tr- 
probably my number two Kurosawa film. It's an amazing film, and Shimura just carries the whole movie. So mm. he yeah. he he though does kind of set the tone for Zen's focus, though. Uh, they they have him <laughs> like going like, "I want you to get the headline: Mystery Natives of Infant Island." And Zen goes, "Sounds like a detective mm-hmm. story." And Chief goes, "Shut up!" And I'm like, <laughs> I love how freak- I like how br- like abrupt he is. Is like, yeah. shut the fuck up! Like, yeah, I don't have no yeah. time for your jokes. Well, comedian. he's probably tired of all his hijinks. Come on. <laughs> um, and we go we cut though to they're trying to make sure they get the embassy statement where they confirm that there were no inhabitants on the island prior of to them selecting not. it for a test mm. site for atomic and hydrogen bombs. Louis Strauss mm. swore to us that it wasn't a situation mm. that we needed to worry about. <laughs> um, we had no idea that he was lying out of his ass. No, uh, mm. the survivors are not a part of the re- the uh, the Reliskin government, and there are uh, and, and so it's mm-hmm. not their problem. So it's just like <laughs> we, we mm-hmm. have nothing to do with this. We were fine. Yep, uh, exactly. And uh, we get to that newsroom back again, where they are talking about uh, potentially going to interview Mister uh, a Professor Chujo, uh, who right. is a linguist, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Mochi. I, how, how do we pronounce her name? Is it Mochi? Is uh, it the photographer? The photographer, you're about? yeah. Um, let me just look up her name. Michiko, I, I think it. it is. Yeah, Michiko. Michiko. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Michiko, the photographer, comes back, and uh, she was supposed to be getting a photograph of Professor Chujo, but uh, <laughs> he believes cameras are the, are the devil. And- it is city eye. He's got this newspaper in front of him. It's pretty funny. It's pretty silly. I mean, she gets him in the end anyway. So jokes yeah, on her. jokes on him. But yeah, he's a uh, he's a quote unquote Polynesian expert. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, and and so they just so happen to be organizing an expedition to the island, right? Right. And, and in yeah. in house is when we have like Frankie Sakai doing his body work for this mouse incident. I, I like that we have that little incident because again, it gives Frankie a chance to kind of flex his muscles a little yep. bit. And, and a great quote, uh, as you mentioned, Chujo doesn't like to be photographed, and he said the shutter is like a guillotine. Yeah, it's it's in which you know I got to say me. Uh, 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 Michiko is not uh, a great photographer because how did no. you not notice there was a book in front of his face the first time? Are you <laughs> that slow with the camera? But it's okay. Yeah, it's she... a pity that her role is so bad because, like I said, yeah. she is a proper actress and she is excellent in some of those Kurosawa movies. Right. I will say know, though, she does. She does have a lighter camera, which is interesting. Yes, she does. She gets <laughs> yeah. him eventually. She yeah. gets him eventually. He does. Yeah. yeah. No, the press. Um, uh, yeah, so he he doesn't know what's going on or, or if he'll be brought onto any expedition, but he does talk about his experience uh, studying Polynesian cultures, yeah. talks about the idea of it being one huge landmass at one time. That's um, right. And uh, and the talking about the, 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 the there's no great differences between the natives in Hawaii and Tahiti. Uh, and so, like, there, he's trying to gather some kind of a educational assessment of it, uh, mm-hmm. and we were kind of thrust pretty uh, readily into Reliska's government uh, yep. uh, confirming an expedition led by Nelson right. Clark. Oh, and no press, by the way, no press, no press, no press. No press, no press no. Uh, yeah. I, I, I remember uh, Nelson Clark's great line, which is, "You're all just a bunch of fake news." Um, and uh, yes, so yeah. Nelson Clark and Nelson Clark. So first of all, Nelson Clark is not an easy name to say in Japanese, so it's kind of funny that they gave him that name. <laughs> um, and he is played by a Japanese American actor, but he does not speak Japanese. His Japanese is terrible. When you hear it, it's not good. Um, and he learned it phonetically, so you mm. can tell. Right? Yeah, so, yeah, you could, yeah. you could. Get 
gather that there's some struggle in there. So I won't um, say terrible. I've heard worse. Right. Uh, he does get the pronunciation relatively okay, but the you know you can tell it's someone speaking Japanese that doesn't know Japanese. Right. And Michiko and uh, Zen ponder who the hell Nelson is. What is he supposed to be doing here? What is he? Well, all we know is he's the leader of this expedition, but why? Right. Um, and then uh, Zen keeps thinking it over, and Michiko goes like, what are you doing? And he goes, oh, nothing. Just planning something. <laughs> Because <laughs> we go to the send off for the expedition, and uh, Michiko right. waves them off, but sees that Zen yeah. is missing. Oh, mm, um, where could he be? I don't know. But the expedition uh, chugs along here, and it's uh, and we have Doctor Harada from the institute initially studying the survivors, and he's mm-hmm. grumbling because doesn't know how to handle get a f- handle on this Nelson figure. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that's when we see Nelson in his room with a gun, so we know something's up. Yeah, so like we talked about last time, right? Japan yeah. is not a gun culture. Normal people do not, you know, average people do not have guns in Japan. And like I mentioned, police what? don't even have guns in Japan. Yeah, <laughs> so, so a guy who has a gun is shady, right? Because we mentioned the gun culture and all the movies with gun culture all come from Yakuza era right right yeah uh, and so so somebody who has a gun is probably a shady person agreed yeah, yeah. and and in this case we find out that zen gets a first-hand experience on this because he kind of gets caught snooping um and uh, is nearly has his head blown off before harada saves him and mm-hmm. uh that's when harada goes like all right he said no press fuck i guess you're a bodyguard now okay cool so the <laughs> and uh <laughs> I love that. Uh, like, I love how he just goes like, "I'm a bodyguard now." <laughs> like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like really, really cute delivery of this. They arrive at the island and they start to investigate it. And as they're investigating, Chujo gets. Oh, I know. Chujo saves him. I forgot. Chujo saves him because he knows who. That's right. He just walks in is. to yes. ask a question yeah. or something, and Ch- then yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But Chujo goes to investigate into this cave that he fi- that he That's stumbles right. upon, and then That's when right. these unusual plants start getting. Yes. tangly around him kind of and... psychedelic again right mm-hmm. you were starting to see some of that 60s psychedelic influence in this cave yeah and all this kind of mutated mold and weird colors and and uh yeah and he might die here were it not for two right. strange twins he's getting are... strangled by a plant or yeah. maybe a plant i don't know what it is but anyway he's getting strangled strangled and then yes our first sight of the show Bijin. and yes as described in the movie show means little Bijin means beauty. So Shobijin is little beauties. So, yeah. And they kind of communicate in code. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And essentially just ask to have the island protected. Right. Exactly. And he, uh, the the team finds him and they uh, they get mm-hmm. him back onto the ship and he recovers mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he said he was ensnared by a bud sucking plant until two extremely small small humans saved him. Uh, that mm-hmm. the, the whole team goes to look into it tomorrow, but Zen stays behind to ask how the small women saved him. Uh, Zen Zen then proceeds to call them tiny beauties, uh, and it sparks a reaction uh, from him that gives him an idea. Uh, Zen, by the way, calls them tiny beauties because it's a newspaper expression. We call yeah. every young woman a beauty, so these are tiny yeah. beauties. And I'm like, there you go. Okay, um, fair yeah. enough. Uh, and uh, so the the uh, Chujo comes to him with an idea. The next day, he discovers something, calls the team over him. He has a recorder in hand, and uh, he has discovered that the tiny beauties are sensitive to sound. So that's how they get mm-hmm. them to kind of coax them over to them. 
mm-hmm. and there are reaction shots of them emanating the tiny screeching noises as they speak. Uh, and uh, and he susses it out as their language, like a code, as you talked about. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and that they are urging to not harm the island. And yeah. they, they go to assure them, we will not be detonating any nukes over here. Uh, we we uh-huh. learned our Again. lesson. Again. <laughs> Again, yes. Uh, and then the twins go to walk off when mm-hmm. Clark and his uh, goon uh, snatch mm-hmm. him up, and then That's right. they're about to take the twins mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. he goes like, you have no idea, like this is an amazing discovery. And that's mm-hmm. when the natives of the island show up mm-hmm. ready to fuck shit yep. up. <laughs> like, yep. yeah. And this is where we get the, the, uh, the appropriation and the brown face attached. To oh it. yeah. Th- there's more of it coming up, but yes, yeah. this is definitely a, where it starts. This yep. is the beginning of it. And I will yep. say you are right that this is not, they are not treated as a joke. Um, yes. So like yeah. American movies, for example, you know, portrayals of African-American people as, you know, lazy, dumb and all these horribly negative things or, or right? any other or any other quote unquote exotic culture like right. Road, Road to Singapore has this fucking issue, the same fucking issue with brownface. Uh, in regards to Bob Hope and Bing Crosby when they're trying to sneak into a feast on the island. Um, but the difference is they're treating it as a joke and this is treating it. I don't know how you put this. It's still cultural appropriation. And yeah, it's but... it's still yeah, it's still problematic, but it could be worse. Maybe we'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's when Nelson uh, seeing the natives uh, surrounding him going like, all right, fine. Put them back for now. Wink. And that's when they uh, we have them that uh, they, they all go away uh, and we are to find out later that Nelson and uh, his crew have gotten back onto the island and kidnapped the Shobijin. Uh, right. When they return from the expedition, nobody has anything to report, no nothing, no know-how. Zen doesn't even know that twins have been kidnapped. And, and by the way, I think when he goes back and captures the Shobijin, the natives do come back to fight, but Nelson comes with his guns. Yes. And so yes. the natives can't protect the Shobijin. And that's when you first kind of hear Mosra being called upon and mm-hmm. the egg. You can see the egg. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. And we get um, we, we also have this moment of Chujo and Zen trying to figure out who Clark Nelson is. He's pretty much a ghost in terms of date of birth, yeah. place of birth, pre-war mm. record. He made an mm. expedition to the Amazon in 1954 in search of beautiful women for use in entertainment. Ew. Mm. Uh, and while this expedition yeah. failed, he is still known as an explorer. Uh, and, uh, the, the the American version retranslates into like the expedition failed, but he's still proclaimed as a hero. I'm like, whoa, that's a that's mm. a shift. Uh and Zen figures that well, maybe he's an international artifacts dealer <laughs> at some point, <laughs> reveals that he found old writings on the cave yep. and then Clark had that Clark had on Infant Island. And then Chujo shows Zen a rubbing that he found um in the mm-hmm. mysterious cave, told yep. nobody else about it, they're trying to decipher it. There's a repeated glyph that may be like the code breaker, uh, the, mm-hmm. like the, the key, the code key. Uh, mm-hmm. And it just says Mothra. Zen mm. asks what, the, what he means and he goes, uh, back on, uh, yeah, back on the island. Uh, they get, the, yeah. they get kidnapped. Um, yep. That's when it goes to the newsroom where mm-hmm. uh, the chief is just like, Zen, how long have you been at this fucking paper? Five, five <laughs> years, sir. And you didn't think it was important to tell me about two Shobijin? 
Yeah. <laughs> like it yeah. very much. I mean, a it's a fair Davidson. question. Yeah, it's a fair question. <laughs> it is. But, but, but I agree with Zen's at least he, he has the newspaper man spirit, but he also knows about keeping his, keeping things fucking quiet if they're not needed to be talked about. And there was an agreement not to talk about the twins. So the fact that Nelson suddenly has these secret fairies of the, sh- uh, secret fairies of the snow, as he calls them, he, he, he fucked all fucked that whole process up. And Zen, it goes to the debut of Nelson's show, the secret fairy show, um, which you can tell that they're already gathering for an American audience because in both yep. prints, secret fairy show is spelled out in English. In fact, a lot mm-hmm. of buildings in here are listed as English mm-hmm. so that you understand that this is so that uh, mm-hmm. an international audience can understand it. And mm-hmm. you don't have to change much in production design. Right. And we get a very Carl Denham esque uh, <laughs> showcase of this tiny carriage floating down to the stage. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Zen's trying to figure out where Shoju's brother is because Shuto's brother is a little. Uh, he's actually very admirable, but he is a little. Yes, he's he's a little irascible, as it were. Yes. Um, yes. The, the carriage lands on stage, and we get the twins let out, and they're singing a chant for Mothra, and we get that yep. banger of a number, Mothra. It's a great song. Yeah. It's a great song, and you know, words made up, right? It's a little bit of Japanese. It's mm-hmm. a little bit like made up language it's it's not really it's kind of a nonsense song in terms of the words but but it's, uh, but it's great the music is great it's so catchy it's a great um, theme song for a kaiju yeah, movie it really, really is it really is and by the way not only are they singing it on stage but it kind of cuts to the same song being performed on infant island yes so that the yeah egg, they so. have the natives yep. chanting yep. to the egg the call to mothra to, to rescue and, the um, fairies yes and we should just say right so with nelson putting these folks on stage of course a big current running through this film is the king kong story right so very similar to the king kong story you're bringing these people from their native environment to exploit them mm-hmm. and yeah. you know that's that's one story current in yeah. this film. But at least Carl Denham was willing to share the wealth with everybody from yeah. the island. Nelson Clark wants everything to him fucking self. Okay, he I got gotcha. At least, at least Carl Denham went. We're millionaires, boys. I'll share it with all of you. Come. Not man. all exploiters are the same. Yeah, no. Some of them are Robert Armstrong, and some of them are Nelson Clark. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, and Nelson will not give an interview. With anything, with anybody, nope. and Zen and Shujo uh, talk about how the mm-hmm. Reliscan government wasn't even enthusiastic about launching the expedition, mm-hmm. but Nelson paid for it. So again, right. Z- uh, Nelson, Nel- Nelson, yeah. yeah, capitalism, yeah, money exactly. means honey, as it. And were. he literally says they are merchandise. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. That and that and he he won't he won't have any discussion about letting these fairies free um and uh he says that they don't understand regular speech so it's pointless to talk to them but you've been so nice i'll let you talk to them for a little bit and at yeah. the cage they try to communicate with them Chujo mm-hmm. tries to remind him, like, remember you saved me from Audrey too? Remember? <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, and uh, Chujo's brother declares that they should set him free. He goes like, we should just let him go and just fight uh-huh. our way out. And, and it's like, yeah. you're an idiot kid. <laughs> like, don't, don't, <laughs> don't do that. Um, and uh, they they keep trying to communicate with them. And that's when the Zen, mm-hmm. when uh, Zen tells the twins to not lose hope and they will get him free. They say, uh-huh. thank you. And yeah, they understand Japanese. They can use telepathy. Mm-hmm. Yes, telepathy and is a key core here. Yeah. 
Mosra's coming to save us. Yeah, and it's like, thank you so much, but it doesn't matter. You're all doomed. (laughs) (laughs) And And, and that's where we get a little description, right? Mosra just acts on instinct, Mm -hmm. um, and she's coming, and there's going to be a lot of destruction when she comes. So sorry, but, you know. That's what's going to happen. Yeah. And back <laughs> on the island, we have the continuation of the ritual, yep. a command, life eternal yep. to Mothra. Mothra, answer our prayers. Arise now. And that egg begins to rumble and crack Yay! until it's hatched to reveal Yay! a giant larva. Yeah. And oh, by the God. way, this is, I think, also kind of unique to this kaiju that we see it in different states of life. We got the egg, and then we got kind of the caterpillar stage, and then we got the butterfly, the moth stage. Can so I interrupt cool. with some facts about those Please. different forms? Ooh, Please. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. So Love there it. are three different models for the adult Mothra. The mid-sized mo- there's a small, oh, I'll start with size. The small model is used strictly for extreme long shots of Mothra coming upon New Kirk City later on. Uh, the wing flapping, by the way, will be achieved with models with suspended, uh, with the models being suspended on wires from an over- overhead motorized brace, which would open and close. So kind of like the octopus and um, um, and uh, Ed Wood that they mm-hmm. where they forgot the motor. That's what it sh- could have done. Um, <laughs> but from the from obviously from the bottom, not the top. Uh, the mm-hmm. mid-size model was uh, more fl- uh, had more flexible wings for the hatching scene. Uh, and the smaller thorax and a shorter wingspan. The larger model is built to one one hundredth scale, two point five meter wingspan. The wingspan is less flexible. Its eyes lit by light bulbs from the inside of the head, and the eyes are constructed from clear latex. And I just love these little factoids about uh, how yeah. they built these fucking things. And and I noted down it's forty six minutes in before we actually see a kaiju, and that is kind of common of these kaiju films. The right? difference, yeah, teased and teased, and yeah, you know. the the difference between this and the American version, and we can talk about this yeah. right now, is that yes. really. They cut a lot out. They cut a lot out. And it's more so a matter of it's not removing any content. It's not like they said, like, these twins are annoying. Uh, Mm -hmm. It it was very much like I I noticed this from an editor standpoint. It's almost like if you told me to tighten up a movie, which I've done before, if you want me to tighten it up and I really, really didn't want to do it and I but I had no choice what they kind of do is expedite scenes far too much. Like everything feels Mm -hmm. way too fucking quick for its own good. Nothing is allowed to breathe in that American cut. It's not a bad cut. It very much gets right to the point of what you want, but it is a little, like I think it's about 40 minutes, like 40 minutes, 30 to 40 minutes in, we get Mothra action. So you get 40 minutes worth of Mothra action, more or less. Right. Like, so it's, it's very different. It's from an editing standpoint. It's interesting because Thanks to the dubbing and other elements involved, they kind of get away with it. It's not like mm-hmm. it's not unreasonable. No, I think, yeah, you know, you can see a lot of that first part being cut. Like, do they really need two trips to Infinite Island? You know, there's a lot of there's some fat there that could probably go. So. Exactly. I mean, I like the movie and I enjoy it, but I can you can see how that could that could work okay. Absolutely. So, so yes. Yeah, so the so the caterpillar slash larva yeah emerges uh, comes, comes out and the cat yeah. and the caterpillar form by the way was made as a suit which allowed for the construction of a larger set. It would be the largest suit created for a Toho Kaiju property, one twenty fifth yep. scale at seven meters long. It needed five or six performers in the suit to operate, and the suit operation team was led by Haru Nakajima and Katsumi Tezuka. Um, And they had an additional hand-operated model that was uh, a little bit more narrow and oval-shaped. So there's a lot of... And Kalat said there were actually 12 operators for the most, the kind of... 
costume. That, and that makes more uh, sense than hearing you five could or six. stand up in it. Yeah, it's big enough that you could stand up in it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that yeah. is nuts. Like that's nuts yeah. to think that like it's they took huge. the pseudomation. You think pseudomation is just like, well, just put a Godzilla costume on him, and the whole thing will work out. <laughs> There's more intricacies to it. I imagine if we went down the King Ghidorah route, we'd be talking about puppetry. I'm just taking a yeah. wild guess. Um, yeah, and like so. Yeah, but the thing is huge, and they film it in this thing called the Big Pool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. the big pool is kind of concrete building. Um, the sky is painted on, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and then and then there's just a whole lot of water for this thing to go through. It, it so. reminds me of how I am, how I remember the Jaws scene and the Universal tour <laughs> taking place, where I'm like, well, the sky's fake, <laughs> like yep. you can tell exactly, uh, but it's so beautiful because you watch that shark pop out. You're not you're not looking at the sky. You know, honestly. <laughs> I didn't really pick up on that until they started saying, oh, yeah, I was in a big, you know, the first time I watched it through without the commentary, I'm like, yeah, of course it's swimming through the ocean. And then, of course, they talk about the pool and the, and it being painted on. I'm like, oh, yeah, it is painted. But you don't notice it because you're not paying attention. Not right? at all. No. Yeah. It, it's that, yeah. And that's the thing with a lot of the special effects in these kaiju films. I never feel cheated. I never feel no. cheated whatsoever. And even when I re- I watched Godzilla Raids again for the first time a couple weeks ago, even when I could see the folding of the rubber in the rubber suits. I didn't give a shit. I I did. I actively objectively noticed, Oh, this is when you start getting the, the, the looks of goofiness surrounding these films because the first Mm -hmm. Gojira is very much in shadow. That monster does look real in so many respects, Mm -hmm. but like, but but I never feel cheated with these movies. I never feel cheated. I think they do. I actually think one of the geniuses of all these kaiju films is how much personality they can give to this creature. You know, like like I said, like I have a love for Mothra from yeah. childhood. And I still feel that, you know, I feel like, oh, she's so persistent and she's trying to rescue her people. And mm-hmm. you just love this thing and the way it just acts, right? It's getting shot at and it just keeps on going, and, keeps on going. And, you know, there's so much personality imbued in them. So you don't care about some of the bad effects. And you know? and I love watching Larva Mothra as it's swimming through the ocean, basically totally. body slamming the shit out of boats. Yes. That is yes. fucking dope. Yes, just uh, going through the middle, destroys it, screeching along the way. Yeah, and uh, yep. th- that's when we get a headline: luxury liner Orion Maru meets with disaster, floating object right. found. Uh, and yep. Clark and Clark and his group deny any Denies responsibility. Denies all attack. responsibility. Goes like exactly. this is fake news, guys. There's no such thing as a Mothra. Uh, they declare that they will leave the country to protect. Uh, his rights as a a a Reliscan citizen. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of a hard uh, proxy government yep. to say. Zen and Shudro distressed fall upon the last op- option to talk to the girls. Uh, they are stopped yep. by and then eventually subdue <laughs> the worst guard ever in Oh my film. gosh. This, this is like the most ridiculous slapstick is fight. On, I mean, like he literally hit someone with a newspaper. Is, is he on heroin? Because he looks I like he it. just fucking did heroin and was slooshing around going like I love Bleh. that fight. It's just hilarious. It's, it's totally it's funny. goofy sin and whatnot. But yeah. this gives uh, Zen the chance to tell Chujo like you go and I'll deal with this and he proceeds to comically mm-hmm. kick ass That's um, right. and yep. he uses his snapping turtle catchphrase which yep. I really liked uh, yeah. and uh, that's when Zen arrives on Chujo pleading with the girls and the girls tell him Mothra does not know right from wrong he only has the in- uh, that's what they the subtitles yeah. say he only, only has yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they call it's him not he. he there's no gender to it 
Yeah. Yeah. No. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. No. The, uh, yeah. Uh, let me rephrase that. Then Mothra does not know right from wrong. They right. has. Uh, they have only the instinct to take right. us back to the island, um, yeah. and they sorrowfully cannot do anything to stop Mothra. So Zen suggests one last idea of how to subdue Mothra telepathy so they arrive at a lab where harada explains to them that they might be able to block the telepathy of mothra thanks to nuclear energy energy nuclear reactor material science yeah, like, who the hell knows what that is yeah. yeah by showing them the brain waves um on an oscilloscope and then showing yeah. a synthetic material used in nuclear reactors that blocks all mm -hmm. forms of energy it shows right. to block the telepathy and they go if we can make a box from this we can hide mm -hmm. the tiny beauties from Mothra. And then mm -hmm. we uh, get Mothra being really uh, <laughs> uh, my, uh, 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 goofily dispatched by... I, I, I wrote down, Bob's can't stop Mothra. <laughs> Bob's can't stop Mothra. <laughs> and also, I, I made a note about this payload looks like a plane... Uh, this payload drop from the plane looks like a hamster taking a shit. Like, they, they drop, like, in sequential order. I'm like, these are fucking, like, bomb droppings. That's all they are. There is a nice shot, by the way, and I'm and because they're capturing this partially on... But they're capturing a good chunk of this on a set in a tank, essentially. The, the, there's a rainbow shot in it, which was so fucking cool. There's like a small shot of a rainbow arch near the Mothra, uh, near Mothra. And I'm like, that was fucking cool. Like, happy accident of reflection there. Um, and uh, it looks like Mothra is consumed in flames. So uh, maybe maybe everything will be okay. Rush, maybe everything everything will be okay. Maybe Mothra won't mm -hmm. come, and nope. Nelson can, can't stop Mothra. Nelson can continue <laughs> his vaudeville tour of nonsense. Uh, in fact, it uh, uh, it's Nelson's so confident goes like your fears were for naught, and Chujo's yeah. like, why are you so certain that Mothra is dead? And he goes, I don't yeah. need to worry about a goddamn thing, but I'm gonna keep your telepathy yeah. box just in case. Yeah. Um, and we still hear the song emanating from the box, so it's not like yep. they're not trying. Uh, right, and. Uh, we are also um, in the point of the dam sequence coming up here. But yes, so Matra comes ashore. Yeah. That's at the point. Then Nelson's show gets shut down, and then we hear that mm -hmm. Dam 3 is in danger. Yeah. Let's talk about this dam for a second. There's some fun, <laughs> interesting stories here. So Subariah back in action. He told his staff for the sequence that he wanted four water tanks uh, that could hold the water. His chief AD made 12 tanks that held 4,320 gallons of water. Mm. <laughs> like, what, dude? Jerry, I told you I only needed four, but maybe 12 will work. <laughs> like, what the? There are definitely some ropey parts of this sequence. Yeah. It's not a great effect. It, it definitely the, looks fake. The, yeah. The dam was yeah. built at 150th scale, so it's four meters high. So it's not small small change by any stretch mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it was meant to realistically crumble under the weight of the water the first three attempts only produced small amounts of water uh yeah. coming through before the structures had to be weakened by hand for the effect mm -hmm. so it's basically like it's basically the shark is not working essentially <laughs> um and as a result uh portions of all three takes that they did were used to edit the sequence together, which I always find that interesting of just like, well, shoot, like one take didn't work all on its own. I have to basically construct yeah. this out of nothing. Um, and there was a Caterpillar prop um, that uh, 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 created for Mothra during those water sequences initially. So like, it's kind of like, it's a different own separate prop, um, kind of like off to the side of this. This, this sequence is... Uh, I, I wrote it as the kaiju version of Battleship Potemkin because... <laughs> 
the baby. Somebody please save the baby. Won't somebody please think of the children, as Helen Lovejoy would say. Yeah, Yeah. because this baby in a basket falls off its parents' cart as everybody's trying to be evacuated. But thankfully, thankfully, uh, uh, our heroes arrive in a car Mm -hmm. just in time to save this baby. Save the baby. Uh, Meanwhile... uh, we and we get a cut to um, uh, a, a revelation that ref- uh, Nelson refuses to return the fairies, and we've had the Reliskin government say that we're not going to interfere with the rights of Reliskin citizens and the rights of their property. Yada yada yada. Basically, we're not we we're not going to force them to give up the fairies. Uh, right. And uh, at Nelson's, these bodyguards uh, allude to the fact that somebody has broken in. They think it's a kid, and as they uh-huh. leave to go investigate it, a chicken costume starts walking around. Uh, but it's revealed to be <laughs> Chujo's brother, um, and uh, he breaks in and goes like, "I'm yep. getting you the fuck out of here." Uh, but yep. then. That's when he gets caught by Clark's crew, and they uh, and they subdue him, and basically yeah. proceed to scatter because the society uh, gets uh, the society column gets a new statement from the Reliskin government that says yes. they have they have requested that Mister Nelson renounce ownership yeah. of and the, the Shobijin yeah. and yep. return them for the sake of good relations. Um, as they That's take right. it to headlines, Zen rushes off to get the reaction on Nelson's face. But Zen, are, yeah, go ahead. Quick note on, so Chujo's brother, the rescue scene, right? That's also, I think, another piece that doesn't have to be in the movie. And I think, uh, you know, originally there was more of a plot around the brother. And that's kind of why this was all created. And then they mm-hmm. kept it in because they wanted kind of a child in there to appeal to potentially children in the audience. Yeah, so I, I did kind of feel yeah. like this is out of nowhere. Uh, Shinji yeah. is kind of just like utilized as like a, an extra sequence. I'm like, why is he here? Like, yeah, there's there was supposed to be more plot that he was involved in that got cut. And what's, so. weird, what's so weird is he's still in the American version. I'm like, you could have cut yeah. that. And I think fine. it's just they wanted a kid. And right. I mean, it's one thing to show the mouse sequence, like okay, whatever. He's got a kid brother, so be it. I don't give a <laughs> shit. Um, and uh, but they uh, they see that Shinji is tied up, and they wake him up and get him untied, yeah. and they and he goes like, they got away, they took everything. Um, yeah. and then uh, meanwhile, Mostra is just continuing the slow march, just yeah. keep on going. Military harassment doesn't matter, and I just love it when she first of all she destroys Shibuya, so yeah. Shibuya has a big big part of Tokyo. I mean, even bigger now than it was then, but Mm -hmm. uh, it's one of the big, you know, a lot of times when you see those photos of when they show like what Japanese cities look like and you have that intersection where like all the people are crossing at the same time. And they're like hundreds of people crossing the intersection Yeah, that usually that shot is, is taken in Shibuya. But anyway, the um, the amount, the amount of extras and the amount of like, you know, almost like I almost want somebody to make a film about, like the the career of one extra through the, throughout yeah. like the the course of an entire genre of kaiju films in the 60s yeah. like that'd be a great mm-hmm. japanese film i'd want to see some director tackle of like just like what's the, the day in the life of a kaiju extra stuff like that well you know they talked a little bit about that in the honda biography because it you know the the original godzilla film had a very difficult sequence because you may remember at the beginning when mm-hmm. godzilla first appears they're like on top of a hill right? right and so they literally had to go top of that hill and they filmed it like in August. So it was super hot. Apparently Honda still had, he had like 
sunburns that left a mark on his body. Like that's how hot it was. Ah, and so all these extras have to be there too. And the monster was kept under wraps at that time, right? So mm -hmm. all these people, they have no idea what's happening. And so they have to tell them like, well, you need to like run like you're scared. And like, yeah, but why? And it's like, well, there's this thing. and But they don't know what that thing looks like or what it is, you know? So so I actually think the Godzilla extras had kind of a tough time of it. They yeah. they got George Lucas training before George yeah. Lucas existed. They're like, no, no. Yeah. No, you just got to pretend that Godzilla is there. That's exactly. fine. Hayden, Hayden, don't worry. It'll be fine. You'll come off great thinking that uh, that Godzilla is over that Jedi Hill. Action. Um, but um, Mothra, yeah, Mothra arrives in the city. Citizens are yes. fleeing. Evacuations. Yes. We get yes. shots of Shibuya, and yep. they fire. The, the military fires. Yeah, so I love, so even before they fire, right, I love that she just comes to Tokyo Tower in the middle of all this destruction just just kind of hangs out, you know, like, and then mm -hmm. you're kind of like, why is she just sitting there at Tokyo Tower, which is nicely broken in half, and everybody's just sitting and watching. It's kind of funny. Yeah. Take a little pause there, right, in the middle of all this. And then, yes, it turns out she is building a cocoon, and she right. does that at the bottom of the Tokyo Tower. Using a liquid, and... using a liquid styrofoam called expanded polystyrene. Uh, mm. And the Tokyo Tower, by the way, uh, we get a little bit of Tanaka's paranoia here. So the Tokyo Towers model was constructed through metalworks used based on a blueprint designed by Toho's effects staff who scouted the building. But despite that effort, the blueprints were only showcasing one side of the tower, forcing the construction of the model to proceed based, frankly, on guesswork. Um, and uh, they, they were not able to get the original blueprints from the actual tower because the tower was like... Uh, what? No, <laughs> no, we're not doing that. We're not giving you no. Go, go home. You're drunk. And uh, so mm -hmm. the model, though, comes out very nicely. Uh, mm -hmm. And as a result, though, Tanaka and Toho heavily guarded that model. Like you know mm -hmm. how, like you see, like yeah. a press uh, press material for the Phantom of the Opera, and they have like a big question mark over <laughs> Lon Chaney's face because they didn't want to <laughs> give anything away. Imagine, yeah. and, and it's the same with actually King Kong. In King, yeah. For King Kong special effects, they threw out a bunch of like fake ways that the effects were achieved so that they wouldn't reveal Willis O'Brien's secrets. It's very similar. Like they don't want people able to reconstruct models of genuine locations to get ahead of them in terms of uh, their model work. Like they were very much guarding Superia's secrets in a lot of ways. Yeah, it was very interesting exactly. to learn. Yeah, that. no, same thing with Godzilla. It's so much secrecy. Very few people had seen Godzilla before the movie actually happened, came out. Yeah. So, yeah. That's why, like that. that's, yeah. that's why in yeah. subsequent films, they, they were so amazed by his performance, they called him Godzilla the Uncanny. Um, or, or, <laughs> or, or, or just by his, his one name, Go. Um, uh, now, uh, uh, now. Yep. So then the thread is yeah. used first to take down a helicopter. So then initially you don't really understand the cocooning is happening. You're kind of like, what? It, what is she doing here? Mm -hmm. And then you see she takes down a helicopter. So it's kind of like it's a threading meant to be a weapon. And then she uses this to build a cocoon. Um, Nelson is doing making a run for it with the Shobijin, and then that's when the atomic heat cannons arrive to burn the cocoon. Yeah. Um, and yeah. at a certain point, it is celebrated. Oh, we burned the cocoon. Mothra's dead. But is Mothra dead, Zach? No. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, at what point 
I, I need to watch more kaiju films, obviously. But at what point do they say, like, you know what? We keep trying nuclear tech. Yes, it just isn't fucking working. It seems to be making but, the problem but that worse. that is humanity. Like, look at how many times we've done stupid things. It doesn't work. And then we just do it again and we do more of it. But you do get a sense there's a certain supernatural element to these kaiju, right? Like, nothing can really destroy them. Or, you know, it has to be like Serizawa has to kind of Which, kill himself in order to kill the... Which, which that's kind of interesting to think about in the grand scheme of like how kaiju are able to carry on into the 21st century because the mm-hmm. the emphasis on nuclear uh yeah. involvement doesn't become as strong especially in the new monster verse it's not as big an element as you'd think it would be if you're going to try to remake Godzilla but they they don't they really try to emphasize like these are creatures that were long dormant and then woke up through mm-hmm. man's yeah. folly they're special they're yeah special. exactly yeah, yeah. So Matra, so the evil guys run off with the Shobijin. They're on a ranch in Rolisica and they're celebrating. Mm-hmm. And that's when Matra emerges. And then so the first thing about Matra when she emerges is that wind, right? That she ooh, generates ooh, this wind. Ooh, ooh. Tornado yeah. car tornado. Car tornado. Car tornado. I love car tornado. <laughs> so fucking cool. And and just yeah. blowing fucking buildings into the goddamn yeah. wind. This is like exactly. this the, the that's why I would love to see the alternate ending to watch the thrust yeah. of Mothra's I agree. Wings. I think the yeah. alternate would have been pretty cool, but anyway, it's I, too bad. I agree. Yeah. Like New Kirk City is a fine enough sequence. It's fine, but it's more of the same, right? Like we've seen that before. Yeah, and and we'll talk about when we get even when we get into it here in a second. Like I have like these uh uh uh, I have thoughts about some of the imagery in here. I do want to point yeah. out though that as Clark escaped, uh, he yeah. he stopped at the airport by right. two U.S. Right. military yes. police, and they just yes. let him go. Yeah. So this, you know, this continues. What? I think I mentioned. So I mentioned at the beginning, right, that um, uh, Japan has this treaty. You know, their constitution says they cannot have an attacking army. And so what's happened is that the U.S. has had bases there forever and ever. Right. Um, and that's very controversial, right? That like, I mean, imagine, right? Imagine in America, if we just had another country whose military just had bases in our country. Like, think mm-hmm. about how weird that would be, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and so that's kind of what's happening there. And that it creates a lot of tension, right? And there are always stories about like, you know, soldiers assaulting native women and yeah um you know it's not it's not necessarily a welcome presence right and so that's what i think a little bit of what's being shown here is kind of this you know the the rolisican slash american is kind of letting nelson go because you know obviously he's one of his guys right and so he gets away with whatever he wants but 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 i did make i I, all i could do is shake my head and go like this is why everybody thinks we're fucking idiots they Mm -hmm. they let They let him go. The Reliskin government already specified yep. that this guy right. needs to surrender these fairies. And yeah. he is just, fl- they are just flat out going like, sure, go right yep. ahead. I can't yep. tell the difference between between one person and another here because I'm a racist <laughs> of my era. Like that, that the, just the idiocy that is yep. being portrayed. Is so- I think that's just sowing the frustration, right? Because these MPs are literally in Japan. Yeah. And people don't like it. So yeah. I think it's kind of just taking a poke at these stupid MPs we have to deal with. I, yeah, I, I was going to say, like, that does look yeah. like an intentional fuck you. It is. Yeah. It very much is. And now, yeah. at the military base, though, the Reliskin ambassador vows that they will provide support, including that Hitama heat cannon. Um, yep. So, like, but they're, they're kind of working closely with the military at this point. Um, mm-hmm. When, uh, when, with Mothra being unleashed, mm-hmm. it heads towards New Kirk City, and uh, we have an American city essentially 
more or less being overrun with yeah. the wrath of Mothra. More twists, more yeah. twisters occur. We have mm-hmm. priests playing for mercy. It's in God's hands now. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, we have the shining cross in the sun. Oh, mm-hmm. Christianity will save us, I guess, because mm-hmm. uh, Shujo <laughs> shows them writing. Uh, that Shujo and the team arrive because they're there at New Kirk City to basically get uh, yep. to get uh, uh, Nelson, but. Nelson yep. has already been subdued by a very angry mob of Reliscans, yep. Yep. Uh, and they basically shoot him down like a dog. He's in the just street. shot, and that—that's why I feel like the ending, the other ending, would have been better, right? This is just mm-hmm. such a—it's so average. It, what, it's, what happens? I mean, to like him. I like the intent of the imagery by the very, very end, but yeah. but the where, where how we get there kind of kind of disappoints me. Um, yeah. But they they notice that the if if they can draw the marker. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the airport, the same marker yes. that they were seeing in the writings from Infant Island, and That's they it. have the churchgoers singing the song at three o'clock. Yep. Exactly. So they're going to attract Mothra with sound and symbols. Right? Yes, exactly. Yep. So basically, mm-hmm. all the pieces fall together, um, mm-hmm. and uh, we get them making the mark at the airport. But there are more mm-hmm. shots. The- Mothra and its gust of wind danger mm-hmm. causes a boat to start careening and capsizing and then a wave starts hitting the city. Mm-hmm. Nuts. Mothra is more powerful than I gave her credit for. I That's the say. thing. People are like, oh, Mothra doesn't have anything. Threads and, and, and win. I mean, come on. Godzilla has atomic breath threader, but like, come on. I mean, this is more realistic, right? Like we've seen what winds can do this summer. Mothra, right? so- Mothra could have been the villain in the day after tomorrow, if they didn't want yeah. to make it a movie about global warming, it could have been yeah. a secret Mothra movie. Like that's yeah. that. I'm just gonna throw that out there. I'm sure mm-hmm. it can create snow if I if I looked hard enough. Uh, <laughs> now the pl- and, and then the plan commences. The church bells yep. play the song. Mothra mm-hmm. starts to calm down and chill out a little bit. Gets mm-hmm. a little mellow. Yeah. Cites yep. the marker and the heroes. Yep. Our heroes get the fairies to them who thank them. Yep. They yep. go to Mothra in a very very yep. calm and. Exactly. It's a message of peace. Yeah. Message of peace at the end. Yeah. yeah. And and the and I love the line goes like, and we promise we'll never disturb the peace of Infant Island again. Like until tomorrow. Yeah, until tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> like like I, if I didn't know there were more Mothra movies, I would have taken that more seriously. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, they wave goodbye, and Zen goes to call the boss to tell him like about the story that's happened, and uh, and uh, 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 Michi. Uh, uh, Michiko, the photographer. The photographer yep. then says she forgot to take the pictures, and everybody laughs as if it's laughs. It's that comedy ending, yeah. just like at the end of a sitcom. Or yeah, something. but then we get Mothra returning to Infant Island amid a chorus yep. of relief, and the native, mm-hmm. the natives are happy, and the twins emerge uh, uh, from the rocks, uh, and the rock writings raise. Uh, ra- raise as a voice cries out a prayer for peace and prosperity to last for all eternity and as a reveal of a cross as a marker on the stone um, so Christianity has found its way into this culture okay interesting uh, but then the natives dance in celebration in the end uh, quite a lot happened in the movie and I, I was very sh- I was very surprised by the uh, the, not just the peaceful nature of how they kind of resolve this ending, but just like how they, you know, I know that Honda wanted to deal with a more immediate issues, but he kind of draws interesting 
discussion surrounding how Christianity kind of gets shoved into this story. Um, mm-hmm. And the idea of like the imprint on other cultures when people come as like missionaries um, or come for yeah, I, gre- I greedy purposes. I wasn't you know? sure if that symbol was actually meant to be from Christianity or maybe it is. Right. And there's definitely that interpretation. I can definitely see it because it's a part of colonialism. Right. Um, but it could have also just been like a native symbol. Right. Because it's not just a cross. It has like kind of the light kind yeah. of emanating out of it i don't know maybe it is maybe that is what the point is i don't know it's i find it i find it interesting only in the respect that there is this there is seems to be this emphasis on how uh outsiders encroach upon the island and bring different ideas or different intent yeah so that's where i think my my brain goes towards this. Uh, this. I idea. mean, you could definitely see, like, you know, if there were a Mothra remake, like, I could see it being like, oh, some capitalist goes in and sets up like a red juice factory or something, <laughs> right? Like, the, you could easily see that, right? Because it's always about exploitation. The, yeah, I, actually, right? I was funny. I went, I went to go watch Toxic Avenger Part Two last night at a movie theater, and there is kind of like that element of a, of the bad guys Apocalypse Incorporated, basically bringing a bunch of bullshit into Tromaville. and I'm like, mm-hmm. God. You know, the Mothra could have this similar impact if we're not careful. Like the the Reliscan government could introduce a bunch of new toxins and poisons into the mm-hmm. environment of Infant Island. Um, mm-hmm. So the film is released theatrically in Japan on July 30th, 1961. Uh, it was ranked 10th place in the annual box office tally as a result of this. Uh, it's released uh, in an English dub um, by Columbia Pictures on May 10th, 1962. Um, and, uh, it was on a double bill with the three stooges in orbit in some of those markets. Um, so an Mm. interesting double bill, uh, not one Mm. I would have guessed by any stretch. Um, now Columbia did pull out all the very interesting, what the fuck stops for advertising this film, uh, the marketing kit, uh, for theaters, which I always love these marketing kits because sometimes they're very on point and sometimes they're stupid as sin. Uh, they enlisted law enforcement and armed services and weapons on display, um, at these theaters uh, with hmm. one of the signs going, none of these weapons could destroy Mothra, which I'm like, okay, uh, that's fair. That's, that's a okay, fair little buildup. Uh, but okay. then they had put, put signs on construction sites that say Mothra was here. Uh, and <laughs> that's actually kind of funny. That's a, that's a good that's one. And then, this yeah. one. And then this one, sending attractive valley girls in spacesuits to key populated spaces with signs that said Mothra, the world's most fantastic love story. And I'm like, I did not read any of that. No, no. Well, that's the probably like trying to get women to come. That's the female market at work. So this, this film goes on to, to, to great success in a long succession Mm -hmm. of these Kaiju films. Eventually Mothra gets to fight Godzilla. um, And then eventually also a great film. Like Mm -hmm. it's really good. one of the best kaiju film, I would say. It's what I've heard, and I need to, I yeah. need to go through it. But yeah. the, I think that what's interesting is that we, we, we've talked about a lot, uh, something that we've both enjoyed and had a lot of fun with. Um, I, I wanted to bring it back to Hishiro Honda for a second, um, because basically, Tanaka later on kind of admitted, like, if I hadn't interfered with Honda, he would have been a very different like he would have been yeah. making the these other types of those films. melodramas a lot of melodramas yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. and like and i i i will say that like 
those melodramas don't carry the same cachet today. And I know that pop culture isn't necessarily a, uh, a, a indicator for success, but I think that kaiju, kaiju films succeeding as they did and permeating different international territories, I think is is just as successful as if a Kurosawa film becomes a claim. Oh, it's in more the so. It's yeah. more so. You know, Kurosawa obviously gets the critical acclaim and the awards, and rightfully so. But when you think about like, if you just stop a person on the street, like, have you heard of Godzilla? Have you heard of Kurosawa? They're gonna be who the hell is Kurosawa? I never heard of him. Did he make the Godzilla film? You know, that's mm-hmm. the question you're gonna get. Yeah, right? like the kaiju. And I think too, you know, if you compare Honda's melodramas to his kaiju films, the kaiju films not only have that international potential, they also have kind of staying power over time. I think. Yeah. You know, the melodramas, all the melodramas are like these two people are in love, but their parents don't approve or something, and it's kind of like. That's, that's not as modern, no, you know, and, and not that, the way things work. And elements of that story get retold time and time again, and it's not right. as visually interesting to right. a mass audience. I think we are talking about a very populous film. There's a lot yeah. of films that we'll be discussing down the line where I don't know if they have the same actual cachet on an international front. But this is this is easily among the many that we'll talk about that has such a huge draw internationally because that imagery is something we all kind of want to see. Like, mm-hmm. and I I find it wonderful to know that King Kong comes in and makes a huge splash. Its revival instigates the birth of Godzilla in a way. And then as a result, in a lot of ways, Japan took something that America did and perfected it in a way that they've never been able to top since. Like any kaiju film that comes from this country has been has not had the same impact I feel. And I think a lot of it from my perspective has to do with in the most recent monster universe films that have been put out where Godzilla and Kong have been fighting each other. I like those films a lot. I really enjoy Mm -hmm. them, Mm -hmm. but watching these films specifically and watching their universe develop Mm -hmm. would have more. I would imagine I'd have a far better time because even from Gojira and, uh, and Mothra, Mm-hmm. I appreciate the craftsmanship involved mm-hmm. and yep. they don't have stop motion, which is fine mm-hmm. because instead yep. you have this very innovative element of, we want to create scale. Let's use these suits. Let's use yep. these puppets. Let's really mm-hmm. get into this practical element that I think all Godzilla films that have come from the United States have failed to fully capitalize upon. They never took the time to capitalize on creating a rubber monster the same way that Japan did. We had our versions of those with our, with like the ants and them and whatnot, but it's not, it's not the same. It's not the same. This is a very, absolutely not. This is a very specific form of sci-fi innovation that Mm -hmm. Japan has the corner market on. Like they, they will be the people I trust to handle this material more than any other studio that could get their hands on the rights to this stuff. It's why like when you, when I look at the fact that Godzilla 2000 came out around the same time as Godzilla 98 in the U.S., I'm just like, I'd rather watch Godzilla 2000. It might be more fun. Like, there is a there is an undeniable factor. In it. And Mothra should not be excluded from that. Mothra mm-hmm. in the remakes uh, mm-hmm. in Godzilla King of the Monsters looks fucking cool. Like, mm-hmm. Mothra looks fucking cool. And they don't, they don't treat it with disrespect. And I mm-hmm. feel like Mothra is a film that God, Gajira will always get attention. 
I would mm-hmm. urge, of people, course, I would urge people to explore Mothra and not dismiss mm-hmm. it because it doesn't look as cool as a lizard. Cat. Right. You know, exactly. Like, it, it, you, yes. I think you'd be surprised by how many of its assumed conventions are upended as a result yep. of the desire to just tell a good story. And exactly. I think that uh, despite the fact that Yashiro, uh, Yashiro Yohan, uh, Honda's career did not, the, the fact that Honda's career didn't go down the route he wanted and, tr- and turned him in, in a lot of ways back to ADing, you know, yeah. it's it, you almost wish you could have the Vincent Price talk with him, which is where you have well, Vincent. You know what? Yeah. So you're right. Like Vincent Price, he's definitely typecast. But part of his career situation is also the collapse of the studio system. Yeah. So and all of them uh, felt that Kurosawa, all of them felt that Kurosawa actually uh, had a suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. He struggled really hard after the studio collapse in terms of trying to find funding. And it was only kind of then knocking about with Lucas and all those folks that kind of gave him money to make things like Ron and Kagimusha. But yep. but they all struggled after that studio collapse. And I think Honda was a victim of that. And also, like you said, just kind of getting typecast as a sci-fi guy and getting tired of that. Right. Yeah. I, I just I. But it, it, even with that context involved, you want to sit down with him and have like maybe have Vincent Price actually talk to him going like, you don't understand, like you're going to or Karloff even be like, you don't understand, like you found a good niche and it's good to be the best at what you're good at than necessarily trying to be the okayest at something you don't normally get known for. <laughs> like I, I genuinely feel yeah, like but I can understand what he you just get bored. I know. Yeah. Right? No. From a director standpoint, yeah. it. it can be even more boring than yeah. I think and from an actor perspective, because an actor has abilities to kind of change things up along the way. If Honda's having to follow a more or less consistent formula under Tanaka's realm, he doesn't have a lot of latitude to shift the tones and try new things necessarily. There's a very strict formula he's going to have to adhere to. Yeah, you can mm-hmm. add fantasy into it and maybe you can address other issues, but it's not the same latitude of flexibility and creative freedom. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that Mothra gives him the most platitude for change. Um, if we're looking at the difference between it and Gojira, it's like it's sort of a 180 in a lot of respects. And I, mm-hmm. I think that in the terms of how we see this in the grand scheme of horror films. I think it's important to not let Mothra be overruled by a Rodan or a Godzilla because Mothra mm-hmm. shows that like, even in this aesthetic, they of a fantasy film, a fantasy horror film, they're still creating a different form of terror, but the monster is more sympathetic. And what exactly. is, what is something that we love in this country, especially from our universal monsters is the relatable monster, the tragic monster. Um, and like that, that tragedy involves Godzilla. Mothra is the sympathetic monster. And I think it's, right. it's important to have the sympathetic monster because yeah. like it's, it's, it's an element that we latch onto as allegory in, in, in culture that gives us some sense of, uh, gives us some sense of hope, I guess. Like, yeah. It's a, it's a kaiju that acts out of love and not out of anger and hate. Yeah. And, and in that, it's res- the kaiju we need for today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is the kaiju we need today. Um, and I couldn't think of a better way to talk about the kaiju we need today than to sitting down with you, Rashmi, to talk about Mothra. Um, ah, this, this has been great. This has been a blast. This is fantastic. Now coming up on the program, what do we got, Rosh? Tell us yeah. what do you have for the so, audience? We have a couple more coming up in our sci-fi unit here, and I thought we'd do one more kind of silly, fun film before we get serious. 
And so I selected Goke, the body snatcher from hell. Um, and, mm-hmm. and this movie, you know, Zach, when I was kind of originally pitching this movie to you, I was kind of like uh, doing it in my uh, Stefan voice. You yeah. Know? <laughs> like, this movie has everything. It's got airplane crashes, it's got aliens, it's got vampires, it's got psychedelic effects. You know? I looked it's, at this, I've looked at the stills from this and I've read people going like, Quentin Tarantino is a huge fan of this going like, okay, I'm, you've, you've got me curious. What? Is this movie? I'm about to find out for the first time, and you and Rashmi is going to be able to relay her experience with it. And then after that, we have uh, we're going more into ghost territory. We're going to be going to more ghost. ghost be, there's one more sci-fi I had planned, and then yes, then we'll yeah. be going into. Oh it. yes, that's right. Yeah, yep. I forgot. We have the, yep. one more. Um, so yep. yeah, we're going to be tackling Goki the body, but the body snatcher from hell, and <laughs> from there, who knows where this journey will take us? But thank you all again, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in to Kawaii. Um, uh, which we have now titled. This is now Kawaii. Kawaii. Explain Kawaii to, to yes, people. Yes, so Kawaii. So the English spelling would be K-O-W-A-I. Mm-hmm. And Kawaii kind of means scary, creepy. You know, like if you're kind of like, oh, I, I was at home at night and I hear this word, weird sound, Kawaii, right? Mm-hmm. And it could also be horror movies in general, people would say. like, In fact, I had this conversation with one of my Japanese friends this weekend and she said she couldn't see, she couldn't watch horror movies because, you know, it's Kawaii. She, she doesn't. So um, so I thought that was a good, good word for us. And just to clarify, some of you may have heard a word called Kawaii, which is what is kind of used for that kind of cute Japanese culture, you know, like Hello Kitty and all that cute stuff. That's a different word. That's K A W A I I. So that's a different word. So yeah. Hawaii. Yeah. Hawaii. This is not scary. a hello. This is not a Hello Kitty podcast. I, I mean, no. despite Although the many, that would be funny. Despite the many requests, <laughs> we're not doing it. Um. Uh. Yeah. And and additionally, we're going to be as we're as we're going along this, we're going to be getting we're going to be diverging a little bit past the, the normal Ballyhoo threshold too to talk about some of these films because there's a lot of stuff that comes out in the 70s as well that's going to be very interesting to discuss in that respect. Um, and uh, But thank you so much again for bringing Kawhi to YBR Presents. Please, please, ladies and gentlemen, check back to our first episode on A Page of Madness. Check out our Invisible Man Appears episode. Get caught up with YBR Presents. And be sure to go back, if you'd like to, uh, to learn more about Hitchcock and Jacques Tati, our two previous series. Uh, have plenty of information that you'd want about these two different masters at their craft. Uh, but until all of that, and until next time, folks, good night. Oh.